This is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode 586, Why People Leave the Mormon Church. Now, that's a simplified title based on a blog post called The Four Reasons People Leave the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and How to Help Them Come Back. I just simplified it into why people leave the Mormon Church. And I'm doing this because one of the Patreon supporters, Jeff Caldwell, sent me this email the other day. He said, Glenn, need some fodder for a sharing time episode? Sharing time episodes are the ones that I do that are Patreon-only content. Um, Jeremy Goff recently wrote an article about why people leave the church and how to help them back. As you can imagine, it is full of deep insights and good advice. Not... (laughs) Okay, Jeff. I don't know. You may be surprised at how I respond to some of Jeremy Goff's comments. So, you know, when I got this email, I read the blog, and I'm going to read it for you here today. I'm going to comment on it, and then I'm going to attach an old episode that was a panel discussion that we had back in June of 2015, so over four years ago. And it was Glenn, Jake, John Hamer, Randy, and Tom. Uh, We responded to a listener email saying, hey guys, what are the top three reasons you left the church? So we called it 50 Ways to Leave the Church. The problem is all inside your head, it seems to me. Anyway, I know the math doesn't quite add up, but (laughs) anyway, so let me start with Jeremy Goff and his blog post, my thoughts on the the blog post, and uh, then we'll go to the panel discussion. And that's an episode. That's what you get today. You ready? Here we go. All right. So this is a blog post that was written by Jeremy Goff, who I think Jeremy's what, probably 28 years old. He lives in Provo and he started making YouTube videos or I guess Facebook videos. I don't know. Facebook videos. He's got a big following. He's got like 48,000 people who follow it, you know, thousands of people who who watch what he does every week. And uh, he also does this blog that's called My Life by Go Go Goff. And um, I've I've done some smackdowns of Jeremy in the past. Most of it's on our Patreon content, but I've published a few of them here to the general public as well. I've never met Jeremy. I've never talked with him. I'd really like to, though. I don't know if, if... I don't know. I, I don't think he would like to talk to me, but I would love to talk to him, actually. And so this is his uh, blog post. He wrote it on July 10th, 2019. I am recording this on July 25th, 2019, for whatever that's worth. And the title, Jeremy says, The Four Reasons People Leave the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's very good. He didn't say Mormon, so that tells you he's still following what... Uh, President Nielsen said, and how to help them come back, which is a really nice way. And then he put a period at the end of the title. You don't need to put periods at the end of titles, Jeremy, but it's nice that you're caring. All right. So Jeremy says, when it comes to people leaving the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it is often one of four main reasons. I want to address the four main reasons, as well as give advice on what we can do to help them come back home. First, 
they slip into inactivity. Mine wasn't really a slip or a slide so much as it was like a slow burn. But um, anyway, you'll probably hear more about that in the panel discussion that follows this. All right, Jeremy continues. (laughs) The first and main reason people leave the church is simply or is because they simply slip into inactivity, which is essentially saying the reason that people leave the church is because they leave the church. I mean, it's, it's tautological. It's, it's, you're not giving the reason why they're doing it. You're just restating what they're doing. Anyway, and then you say, because of inconvenience, they fall out of the habit of gospel living. Now, I actually think that this is quite insightful. And I'll I'll go and in, I'll go into this more. Sorry, Jeff, but I do. I think that that Jeremy's really onto something here. It's true. Um, so because of inconvenience, they fall out of the habit of gospel living, scripture study, then morning and evening prayers are often the first things to go, and then church attendance soon follows. Now, so I, I think most of you who are listening to this know that I spent probably ten years at Indiana University in a graduate program studying folklore and mythology. And I taught folklore and mythology, uh, folklore 101 classes for several years. And one of the areas that I focused on was world religions, the traditions of religion and ritual and belief. And yeah, there's, there's been a lot of work actually done by folklorists looking at Mormons as a folk group, a folk culture. And one of the things that folklorists, uh, they designate a group as either a high context or a low context group, meaning that they have a lot of things in common, a lot of traditions in common, a lot of beliefs in common, a lot of customs in common. And the more things you have in common, the higher context folklore group you are. Mormons are a very, very high context folklore group. There's a lot of things when you're a Mormon that you do in common with other Mormons. And once you stop doing those things, you really do disengage from the group. One of the main functions of doing all of these things and having a a high context folklore group is that sense of communitas, that sense of community, which is really, really important for mental health reasons, for social reasons, for, for all kinds of reasons. And so I think Jeremy's right. Once somebody stops doing the things that that whole big long checklist thing of Mormonism, you really do start slipping away from the culture. Um, And there are definitely consequences that go with that. So anyway, um, let's continue with what Jeremy has to say here. He says, often this slip into inactivity is not the result of a major sin of commission, but rather a collection of sins of omission, (laughs) that they lose the companionship of the Holy Ghost or Holy the Ghost, as I like to say. And because there was a kid in a primary lesson that would talk about Holy the Ghost. I just loved that kid, anyway. And slowly dull their spiritual sensitivities till they justify sense of commission. Well, there's a lot in that sentence. I mean, and it's built on this cute parallelism of commission versus omission. It rhymes, and they're kind of opposite ideas, so they can poetically be used to represent these ideas. But, ah... I don't know what, it's kind of a distinction without a difference here. Although he's trying to make it seem like it's really significant, the sins of commission that you actually do, as opposed to the things that you're supposed to do that you don't do. 
Um, then once sins of commission, and I what what is the sin of commission? I mean, that must be like drinking or taking drugs or having sex or watching porn or rated R movies or, you know, like those things that you do that you're not supposed to do. Whereas the sins of omission are you're supposed to read the scriptures, you're supposed to pray every day and you stop doing those. Those are sins of omission. I mean, there's still things that you do, right? You do. Anyway, I'm not going to nitpick that any more than I already did. Um, so once the sins of commission are committed, like the big sins, then they feel ashamed that they have done wrong. And Satan tells them the lie that they can't go back and that repentance won't work for them. Okay, maybe. There's no Satan. But anyway, uh, helping those who have slipped come back. This group is the easiest to rescue. (laughs) I love that word, rescue. It kind of makes me want to go back and listen to uh, a SmackDown that we did called the Boise... What was it? The Boise Mission Rescue? I don't know. That was that was a talk that was given many years ago. I'll listen to that one again. Um, this group is the easiest to rescue as they feel the void in their lives, but they just don't know how to come back. Now, the void in the life, I think, is a very real thing, and I think it's that social... That, that social high context thing that I talked about earlier, where you're really connected to this group of family members, ward members, friends that you go to school with. And depending on the community that you live in, it might be highly saturated with a lot of Mormons. And once you start feeling alienated from that group, you really do feel a void. So I, I'm, I'm with you here, Jeremy. And they don't know how to come back because... You know, you still really haven't touched on the reasons why they've committed these sins of omission. Like, what's the psychological thing that's keeping someone from praying? And I'll tell you, in in my example, I've talked about this before on the podcast, but um, my first marriage, I was married for 17 years, had three kids, and it just wasn't a good marriage. We just didn't gel with each other. We We were always... Fighting. It was always this power struggle. And I'm being, you know, hyperbolic. It wasn't always that way, but it was mainly that way. And times when it would get really difficult, I would do what they said to do at church. Let's kneel down and pray. And if you can do it as a couple, let's especially do it as a couple, but I would do it by myself. And I would do it and just there wouldn't be any sense of peace from it. It wouldn't work. It wasn't doing what I was told it was going to do in church. And so the the dissonance between what I expected it to do and what it was actually doing was painful. And, and that pain made it difficult for me to then continue doing it. So I stopped praying in those times because I just didn't feel like it was effective. And did this the you know stopping praying stopping scripture reading all of these th- these so-called sins of omission did they lead to me feeling uh, a void in my life probably i i certainly felt a void in my life i i remember laying on the side of my bed and just having <laughs> this this horrible uh gap between me and my wife and thinking of the hymn, where can I turn for peace? And rather than giving me comfort, it was creating more pain because I just didn't feel like there was any place that I could turn for peace. I, I, I felt the 
the instinct to pray because that would, that's what I had been taught to do and conditioned to do. But I had experienced so many times that it was ineffective that I just didn't know where I could turn for peace. It felt like that avenue was gone to me. So, you know, I don't know. What, what, what can I say, Jeremy? I, th- I think that you're scratching the surface of some things that I've actually experienced. And I do want to make sure that it's clear that I'm framing this as my experience. And I don't want to superimpose that on other people who have left the church or questioned the church or anything like that. that I'm talking from my experience here. So I think you're on to something, but I, I think it goes a lot deeper. And if you haven't experienced, it's really hard to even know to think um, what it could be. And so you just hear these platitudes and things that the church leaders say in general conference talks and that sort of thing, which is fine. But there's, as Joseph Smith taught, there's no excuse for, or uh, there's, what is it? Something about experience? There's no replacement for experience? I don't know. It's in the DNC. You probably know it, Jeremy. All right, so this group is the easiest to rescue. They feel a void in their lives, but they just don't know how to come back. Often, they only need a welcoming friend to invite them to come back. But when they arrive, they need to be welcomed with loving arms and non-judgmental ward members. This idea of non-judgmental ward members, I mean, non-judgment to be non-judgment who is non-judgmental is there anybody who's non-judgmental and people try to be non-judgmental but it can't help being non-judgmental and there's things that i i I think one of the one of the things that i found really challenging about the church was that you would put these labels on things like, oh, you need to be non-judgmental and go, okay, well, then I'm being not non-judgmental. But then you're doing a lot of judging things just automatically that you don't recognize. And you're doing it under the label of being non-judgmental. <laughs> and, and so you don't really correct judgmental behavior when it happens. And I think there are some examples of that that come up later on in this blog. So I will mention it again then. Back to Jeremy. He says, they need a friend to guide them sit next to them, and to minister to them. If the church feels like home, they won't want to leave again. Help them secure their lives and family within the gospel and callings and fellowship. This group does not go less active when they feel wanted and needed within the church. You know, maybe. I mean, I think that's a really superficial, you know, like creating straw men. You know, you've created this straw man group here that you haven't really defined and you don't really have any actual examples of. Um, but you're having this definitive statement, you know, that this group does not go less active when they feel wanted and needed within the church. I don't know. There might be more things that are happening under the surface. I can say in, in my case, I would have needed to feel wanted and needed first just within my own family, you know, with my wife or ex-wife now, as the case is. All right, so the next thing that Jeremy says here, second, the second reason that people leave, they take offense. Oh, yes, the old they take offense argument. The second main reason people go less active is that they take offense. Now, everyone is going to be mistreated at some point by a member of the church. Well, that's a nice comforting thought. (laughs) Sometimes it is because we are human and make mistakes. Sometimes it is because that person is just not acting Christ-like. Either way, offense will come, but the choice to take offense and be offended is ours. 
What do you think about that? Do you think that's right or do you think that's wrong? (laughs) Or do you think it's sometimes right and sometimes wrong? I think it's mostly right. I think I think the reaction that we have to things, to be offended, to stay offended, is always a choice that we have. And, and I'll tell you this. When I heard Boyd K. Packer be so dismissive to homosexuals and to people who sympathize and show love to homosexuals, I was offended by that. And I think I was rightly offended <laughs> by that. And, um, yeah, so, so there are times, for sure. I, I, I think the, the, the issue that I take is that um, the people who are doing the offending in this case think that they're justified and they're so self-righteous about it. And that's offensive to me, too. And as a result, it makes me not want to be that way. Like, I don't want to act that way. But yeah, there are definitely things about the church saying that you are all about love and Christ-like love and then turning around and not being Christ-like in the things that you do that I find offensive and I found offensive and made me not want to associate myself with this group of people anymore who do this. Even though, for the most part, the people are great. But that's still like this cancer that I see. I don't know. I'll, I'll be interested to see what comes up in the thing that we recorded five years ago, because I, I may have touched on similar things then. All right. I'm going to skip down in the blog a little bit to helping those who take offense come back. Uh, the, the way to overcome offense is simple. <laughs> yeah, right? It's simple. The one who offended, and it must be the one who offended needs to ask them for forgiveness and to come home in humility and love, even if it was not intentionally given. You you think that's simple, Jeremy, for the person who offended to ask for forgiveness and to be really sincere about it? I I mean, that would be great if that really was simple, but I don't think it's that simple. So you continue, Jeremy. When the person giving offense asks forgiveness and invites them to come home in sincerity and humility and not defensiveness, it invites the spirit of reconciliation needed for the rescue to start. The only thing preventing reconciliation is pride. Pride often that the part of the offender who feels justified. Yeah, that's what makes it not very simple. And then he recommends David A. Bednar's talk on taking offense, which I remember when that came out a long time ago. All right. The third issue, according to Jeremy Goff, is they take issue with church history. The third reason that people leave the church is far less often than the two, is it? And it's because of church history. History is not pretty. Church history is no exception. One of the most significant issues we make with history is the fallacy called presentism. (laughs) Really, is that... One of the most significant issues, presentism. What is presentism? Presentism is when we look and judge the past based on our modern cultural understanding and expectations. Oh, come on, dude. Creating, like weaving a really great rug here to be able to sweep issues underneath without examining them, actually what they are. You can just throw the label of, oh, that's just presentism at it. 
and then not really get at why someone is offended because this is connected to the offense. When you find out things in church history that happened that you're really struggling with, you're like, how can I reconcile this? And people won't do it because they're like, ah, presentism, it's not important, it doesn't matter. Well, clearly it matters to some people. So how are you going to address it? And then Jeremy says, everyone in history can be twisted into a villain with presentism. Everyone? I know. I mean, this is just like painting with really bold strokes here. When it comes to mistakes made by former church leaders, a great quote comes from President Ballard. Too many people think church leaders and members should be perfect or nearly perfect. Blah, blah, blah. Come on. I, it's not really about all or nothing being perfect or not perfect. It, when, when things like this come up with church history... It's, it, it's because somebody really has a problem when they find out that Joseph Smith told young girls that if they didn't marry him, they would be damned for all eternity. That sounds like an abuse of priesthood authority, whether it happened in the 1800s or it happens today. So I don't know how presentism is really a helpful thing to throw at that. I mean, it just... It's just not. And how to help people who take his issue with history come back? You don't have anything in here that's helpful, Jeremy. Um, you say, with the first two reasons, it's generally easier to rescue someone as they still believe the doctrine. I mean, that's a stretch right there, too. But, I mean, you're creating these straw men, so why don't you put whatever costume you want on them and say that the first two still believe in the doctrine? But the final two sections are the most dangerous. When someone takes issue with church history or doctrine, either, <laughs> here we've got an either or, either they often have been anti <laughs> I love that, and they reject witness and testimonies they already have, they already have had, and they start to demand a sign. I, wow, jeez. There's so, there's so much about this that I take issue with, Jeremy. You know, like... Especially as I've been watching your videos, uh, the most recent one I watched was the one where you talked about Nephi being justified in killing Laban. And how many things did you bring in, like historical context that you used as a sign to show that Joseph Smith couldn't have possibly known that, and so he couldn't have been the author of the Book of Mormon? Like you, you, you talk about asking for signs as if it's a bad thing that ex-Mormons do or apostates do that drives them to it because they demand to see a sign. But at the same time, you build your testimony based on these flimsy signs, but you just don't call them signs. You think it's something different. So you pick and choose when a sign is good and when a sign is bad. And it's all based around, you know, this conclusion that you have that the church is true and that nothing is going to shake that or shatter that. And then you've got your own signs that uh, hold that up. But anyway... Where are we at? If they are no longer willing to walk by faith, all you can do is love them. I'll tell you what, Jeremy, there's nobody in this world that does not walk by faith. That's, that's what I've come to believe. Even people that reject the idea of faith, we're still like, there's, there's so much about existence that we just do not know. There's so much that we don't know. But we're still live in life. We're still going by the things that we do know, and we're making assumptions about the things that we don't know that in some cases are pretty good and other cases, you know, I don't know. But it's, it's you know, like like Indiana Jones, man. 
It's like Indiana Jones in the quest for the Holy Grail. You know, remember when he had to walk across that cavern to get the Holy Grail and he couldn't see anything, but there was actually a path, but it was like really expertly painted to look like the wall across the cavern, you know, and then he picked up the sand and he spread it across. You could see the path, you know, like we do that every day. We're like, it wasn't just Nephi who went about not knowing ahead of time the things that he was supposed to do. I mean, maybe you do a really good job and you have like a, <laughs> what are those planners called? Franklin planner. Boy, that's a blast from the past. Maybe you've got a, a Franklin planner that tells you everything that you're supposed to do every day and what the reaction is going to be every day. But mostly you don't. And you just go through the day and you take things as they come. And that is just as much living in faith as anything else. So anyway... But I keep going on these tangents about little nitpicky things. If they are no longer willing to walk in faith, you say, all you can do is love them. Just love everybody, right? And really do it. If they are still honest with their concerns, don't you hear like the judgment in there? Like you're saying if somebody has concerns and they don't agree with you, then they're not being honest. Like that's judging. You said before to like not judge. You want to not judge. Like, that's pretty judgy. If they're still honest with their concerns, then the best quote I've ever heard about church history issues actually came from someone who had left the church for doctrinal issues, which I will address in the next section. I will call him Jason, not his real name. And then he tells this story of Jason and, you know, and and ends with the thing about, like, things don't matter. I'll just go ahead and read it. The discussion I was having was with four people, myself, a fully active and believing member, two RMs, returned missionaries who had taken tons of issue with history, and Jason, who had left the church right before he was going to serve a mission. The two other RMs were complaining about history when Jason called them out and said, if the doctrine is true, then the history doesn't matter. They were taken back by his comments, but then they retorted, but what about blacks and the priesthood? or the changes with the word of wisdom, or polygamy, to which Jason very firmly replied, if the plan of salvation is true, then those issues don't matter. And if the plan of salvation is not true, then those issues still don't matter. And that's all Jeremy says about it. And then he goes on to the fourth thing. Like that that exchange there with Jason and the two RMs and Jeremy, like if, if these issues matter to the two RMs, and you're just dismissing and saying, well, they don't matter. You're saying, if the doctrine's true, then they don't matter. And if the doctrine isn't true, then it doesn't matter. What does that even mean? Then why does it matter to them? You're just telling them that, they're, that they don't matter. Basically, the things that bother them don't matter. And that doesn't help. So this should not be part of a section that's titled, Helping Those Who Take Issue With Church History Come Back. The way to help people come back... And come back, like, what does that even mean to come back? Like, you're thinking that they have to come back into church activity. But what they really need is to have this void of social acceptance filled. You know, they they need to be part of their community, their tribe, their people, their family. So they need to be accepted. They need to be heard. They need to be understood. But what you're saying in here is that their issues don't matter. So you're not going to help them back into filling the void with this kind of an approach. That's my thought. Fourth, they take issue with doctrine. Taking issue with doctrine is the fourth main reason people leave the church. This group, like the third, 
is far smaller than the other two, but often they are more vocal and want you to think they are the majority. See, when people leave the church because of doctrine, they run into a problem. They know too much. They know and still believe too many restored doctrines to go to another church. I don't know who these people are that he's thinking about. I'm, uh, he's straw manning here. See, there are truths that are unique to the restoration that they know to be true. For example, the fact that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the only Christian church that teaches that all men are literal children of God, the Godhead, eternal families, etc., etc., etc. I'm not sure that that claim is true. I mean, you were very careful to put the only Christian church that teaches this. But this, this idea of being literally the offspring of God is not unique to Mormonism. And in fact, th- this attitude of things that are unique to Mormonism, and so therefore Mormonism must be true because of all of these unique things, that was one of the things that became a stumbling block to me, if you want to frame it as a stumbling block. One of the reasons that I started seeing the church not as unique was because I started looking at other world religions. And, uh, you know, like one of the oldest and largest religions that you, you probably don't think about very much, Jeremy Goff, Hinduism. They have this really, really fascinating belief about God. They don't think of God as this anthropomorphized Elohim glorified man kind of thing, but they think of it as Brahman, as the formless energy and intelligence that animates all life and that we are part of Brahman. We are Atman or whatever, you know, the the Hindu stuff. It's like, it's not that far of a stretch to say that's kind of the same thing as saying that we're literal children of God, that we literally are God, that we literally are Brahma. And I don't know. I I think that that's a really cool teaching, um, actually. And the way that I interpret it is the atomic and subatomic energy that makes up us and everything else. I think of that as the big sea soup of whatever ancient Hindus were talking about, Brahman. Uh, that's that's the way that I look at it. But but the point here, Jeremy, is that you, you're you're in this really myopic spot where I don't see the things from you that you really understand the world as much as you think that you do. Like you understand what church leaders have said. Like you understand very well conference messages and what you hear from apologists and other things like that. But you don't know that the way that they interpret things is incredibly heavily biased and you don't have the tools to be able to Look at that compared with other people. In fact, you're afraid of what other people in the world will say because you know that it'll challenge that. Anyway. So the first course you say that some people go to is they become non-religious. And then the second course is that they become antagonists and they're anti. And you've got the quote in here that you can leave the church, but you can't leave it alone. Um, the basic reason for this is simple. Once someone has received a witness of the Spirit and accepted it, he leaves neutral ground. There's not anything such as neutral ground. I mean, this is... You know why people like myself, and again, I'm just going to speak to myself here. Why is it that I haven't gone to church for over 10 years, but I've been podcasting about church, the Mormons, for, for all this time, and I'm still 
fascinated with it. Why can't I leave it alone? Because it is me, man. It formed me. It formed my, my neural pathways, my habits, the way that I view the world, the, the relationships in my life that are the most important to me. That's why I can't just leave it alone. It's, it's a high-context folklore group. And I'm interested in understanding things. <laughs> That's what drives me. I left the church because I really wanted to understand it better. That's why I left. You don't have that as one of the reasons on here, but that's, that's why. And I, and I left because I didn't have the temperament to be able to be kind and charitable to people who saw things differently than me. I was incredibly judgmental about it. It drove me nuts. And I would go away from church on Sundays just in such a bad mood, in such a horrible mood. And it was because of me, because I couldn't, I, I couldn't deal with the differences between what I was seeing and what I was understanding and what I was hearing other people say and what I, what I viewed as being myopic and small. So I'll take responsibility. That's on me. There are people who are able to stay and deal with that stuff. It doesn't bother them the way that it does me. And they're still just as interested in understanding things and seeking truth as I am. But anyway, Jeremy, so You've got this whole thing. It's about th- those who have apostatized want you to think that hundreds of thousands are leaving the church due to doctrine and history. It is simply not true. No, but it is true. Hundreds of thousands are leaving. I mean, they really are. J- just with this podcast alone. I mean, I can't say that people who listen to Infants on Thrones have all left the church. I know that's not the case. But it's not this black and white simple thing like you've mapped out here either. At what point have you left the church, even if you're still attending but you don't believe it anymore? You know, we, we've had over six million downloads of this podcast in seven years. How many hundreds of thousands fit into six million? So people are having issues with the doctrine and the history, and their needs aren't being met. They just aren't. So anyway, uh, Jeremy, thanks for the blog. I'm, I, I like Jeremy Goff. I like Jeremy Goff. And uh, thanks, Jeff, for pointing this out to me. And thank you, listeners, for listening to me ramble about this in monologue for 30 minutes. And now I'm going to stop that, and we're going to go to a panel discussion. And, um, you know, I, I, I want to warn people, if there are people listening to this that aren't familiar with Infants on Thrones, it can get a little rowdy. You know, when we get the panel together and we get our group together, um, we, we, we have fun with taboo topics and subjects and words and things like that. And we don't have much of a filter, so you can have your own filter. Um, we're going to have a lot of fun here, starting with uh, 50 ways to leave the church. And you'll hear why we called it that. Once upon a time... A listener of Infants on Thrones wrote to us the following email. Dear Infants, I'm sitting in the church foyer right now, dodging the combined third hour, and was thinking about a topic I'd like to hear about. Everyone has their own topics that they feel passionate about. Gay rights, polygamy, mountain meadows, massacre, etc. I don't have one. They all bother me. But I thought it'd be interesting if each infant came up with their top three or five, if time allows, rank them according to shock factor or doubt indictment, and the number one being the back-breaking straw for them deciding to leave. Thanks, Rob. Well, Rob, we listened. 
And here's what we came up with. All right, guys. Uh, five times three, 15 reasons why we left the church. Well, technically, it's a shitload more, but those are just the ones that we highlighted tonight. Yeah. Can the intro music be uh, like 50 ways to leave your lover or whatever? Ooh, right. right. Let's get on the train, you know, train, chain, whatever. 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 The problem is all inside your head, it seems to me. The answer is easy if you take it logically. We'd like to help you with your struggle to be free. There, there must be 50 ways to leave the church. You know, it's really not our habit to intrude. Furthermore, we hope our meaning won't get lost or off you skewed. So I'll repeat myself. At the risk of being crude, there, there must be... 50 ways to leave the church 50 fucking ways to leave the church You just open your quad, Todd Turn on your brain, Jane Just open your eyes, guys And listen to me Don't get so annoyed, boy Lost tribes on an asteroid Lock your way to the bank, Hank And make yourself frank Go kiss the boy, Roy Drink some tequila, Sheila. Or Dana Galt, Sal. And listen to me. Learn a new dance, dance. Get, get some new underpants, dance. So once I show off your knees, Steve, and, and get, get yourself free. You know, it grieves us all to see you in such pain. We wish there was something we could do. To make you smile again, so we make podcasts. podcasts. And shove the shit inside your brain about the 50 ways. The 50 ways. So put your earbuds in and listen again tonight. And we believe that in no time you'll begin to see the light. Because we're, we're just, just infants. But you know, we're, we're probably right. There must be 50 ways to leave the church. 50 fucking ways to leave the church Take the red pill, Jill Drink beer on the lawn, John Light up some weed, Reed Do the fun deed Hold tight to your rod, Rod Forget about cola The world needs more drones, Jones And more infants on drones Step out of the circle, Urkel Take off the hat, Matt Lose those sleeves, Eve. Just listen to me. Scissor your gal, Val. Go, Go Free, true to yourself, self, and, and set, set yourself free. free. Read the scriptures again, Glenn. Admit you made a mistake, Jake. See that patriarch's name or hammer? Because this is a no-brainer. Oh, fucking, fucking. Guzzle brandy like candy, Randy. You don't gotta go so much. See that Brigham was wrong, Tom. And sing this nerdy uh, psalm. Oh my god, this is so hard. I'm sorry that I'm not better at this. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and like you heard in that song just a second ago, today you're going to be hearing from me and Jake 
John, Randy, and Tom, although it took Tom a little while to join us. And today we're responding to Rob's email and talking about the top three straws that broke our camel's backs. Sort of. Now, we initially thought that we'd go into this conversation and talk about these three things, get them out of the way, and then explore the idea of respect that was raised at the end of our recent Gay Bigotry Smackdown episode. We even pulled a clip from Patton Oswald about respecting beliefs. Want to hear it? Nobody would go, hey, we have to respect his beliefs. You know, you gotta, you've got to respect everybody's beliefs. No, you don't. That's what gets us in trouble. You have to, look, you have to acknowledge everyone's beliefs. And then you have to reserve the right to go, that is fucking stupid. Are you kidding me? I acknowledge you believe that. That's great. But I'm not going to respect it. I have an uncle who believes he saw Sasquatch. We do not believe him, nor do we respect him. What if I, what if I 1,000% believed, and I believe this 1,000%, what if I believed that there was a giant invisible anus hovering over me, and if I wasn't nice and helpful and courteous and charitable to everyone I met, the anus would appear, suck me up into it, and I would be devoured by shit piranhas. And I mean, and I believe this 1,000%. I would be the nicest guy you ever met. You'd be like, Pat, you're so helpful and charitable and, and courteous to people. Why is that? And I'll go, it's funny you should ask me that. <laughs> you can't see it, but there's an invisible anus hovering over me. And if I'm not nice to everybody, it will appear and suck me up and I'll be eating. Well, I don't need to tell you about the shit piranhas. We all know about those, right? <laughs> Your correct response would be, I acknowledge you believe that. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Please do not stop believing in the dumbest thing I've ever heard because you're actually helping people out with your craziness. Don't stop believing in that stuff. Please, I beg you. Yeah, pretty funny, huh? But, uh, well, here's the thing. We never quite got to that respect part of our discussion, although it does come up once or twice. Maybe if we'd had the threat of shit piranhas hanging over our heads. Hmm. Anyway, here you go. Waiting for Tom to join us. Enjoy. We we can just start because uh, up to like the beginning, we're just gonna kind of do our you know top three, boom 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 boom, right? I mean, it seems like it would be pretty pretty seamless to integrate him in during you, the first like fifteen minutes. Do you want to do um, like where we all do our third, and then we go around, and then we all do our second, and then we all do our first, or do you want to just do Jake's section, John's section, Randy's section? Okay, Ooh, number well, three. Exciting. The third for everybody. <laughs> yeah, right. The third right, for right up to the up to the top. <clears throat> yeah, we get to get the top reason. Yep. Yeah. Uh, did you start with? Okay. So, but then we need Tom. Did you, how yeah. did you prioritize it with one, two, three? Did you put one is the most important or three is the most important? One is the most one important. Is the most important. When we one say most important, is the loneliest number, number that you ever. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't work. Yeah. Is the most important number. Okay, so three. Mine won't make sense because mine's chronological, so I'd be going backwards in time. <laughs> but no, it's importance is what we're doing, not chronology. 
Well, they're important because of the chronology. Well, then start with the oldest one, or okay. and then build on it with number two, and then yeah, cause, number cause the, one is the you gotta get end result. Number one is the is the camel's back one. So there you go. Okay. So these aren't necessarily in descending order of importance, but I mean they can you know for, it's for, at, at the time that we wrote the list. <laughs> Right. <laughs> these, these were the ones that we considered the top three, and we reserve the right to change our mind at any time because how do you really do this? You know, and, and like with with mine, it's tricky because there's like multiple things in my number three. It's not like one single yeah, thing. You know, three's it's like, like a big tie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's more thematic, but mm-hmm. and okay. it's totally totally arbitrary, and depending on how you feel that day, right? Right. <laughs> And what's happened to you most recently? It's also hard to think of it out of order because we got to do it backwards here now. Well, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Write it down. Okay. And then use it as a look at it. <laughs> okay. Glenn, start. Three. Oh, well, for, for, for me, it was, I wrote down the scriptures. And uh, <laughs> so there's like a lot of things that go the in there. The scriptures. Like, yeah. Like, like, um, you know, the Tower of Babel story, because, you know, with the Old Testament, I was able to go, oh, well, that's just folk tales. That doesn't have to be literal. We can take, you know, metaphoric interpretation of Noah's Ark or Tower of Babel. You know, like I can understand that from an anthropologic position that these are ideological legends or myths or something like that. And they didn't necessarily have to happen. It's just these are the origin stories that this culture and group of people have. But when the Tower of Babel pops up in the Book of Mormon and the Jared story, the Jaredite story, it's real. You know, like you can't right. you can't sweep it under the rug like you can with the Old Testament because then you, you got to throw out the Book of Mormon. So there were there were little things in the scriptures like that. Um, well, you don't have to throw out the Book of Mormon, but you have to throw out the notion that it's historical. Oh, right. Which is basically throwing out the Book of Mormon. I mean, so for, for me. So your number three is really Book of Mormon historicity kind of thing. Big, but yeah, that's a good way to put it. And and so, like, the, I've toyed with the idea of doing a minisode about this. I think I've mentioned it a couple of times, but I never explain it very well. When, you know, there's a, there's a story in the Old Testament when the Moses' people, he's leading them through the wilderness and they're complaining about stuff. And so God gets pissed and sends the fiery serpents that bite them, right? Yeah, and so yes. Moses puts this God serpent. God is so cool. Yeah. He's like, he, he builds this brazen serpent on a pole and he holds it up. The and says, stand. Yeah, the Nehustan. And anybody who looks at it and exercises their faith will be healed. And the ones that are stubborn won't. Right. And when I was in seminary and I was taught that story, the seminary teacher told us that that Nehustan, that image of a of, of a single serpent on a on a post, is the is used for the medical field today because it's tied back to Moses, right? Uh-huh. And so I was sitting in sacrament meeting in Japan. I was preparing a lesson for the primary kids. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to tell them this story and everything. <laughs> and then I start looking into it. And I go, well, wait a second. But the, the medical symbol is two serpents around. It's not right. one serpent with around. With wings, too. Well, but, the, but yeah, with wings. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Right. And this is when I started going, wait a minute. And I looked in the, the, most, the, the, the biblical you- version of the story. And there's no serpents with wings. 
But in the Book of Mormon version, it's serpent with wings. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and so there's this difference there. And I, I started looking at it, and what happened was when, like in the early 1800s, when the Medical Association got this image, they put the wrong serpent with wings traditional image. Like the one that they actually used, do you know what it's called? It's not the Nehustan. It's the Caduceus. The Caduceus, which and is. And it's the is symbol of Asclepius. Hermes, of Hermes. Okay. Right? And, and it's. Well, a, it's used. Asclepius. You're probably more correct than I am. <laughs> but it, but it but wasn't. Anyway, in other words, Asclepius. We got believe it. in yeah. Glenn as far the as Greek, he is informed correctly. The Greek god right. of healing. Correctly. Yeah. The Greek god of healing. Yeah. But it was not healing, it's merchants. And thieves, oh. and and you know, so it's oh, a complete. So oh, I see. The wing, the wing one you're saying is the Mer- is Hermes as opposed to the right. Asclepius, which is just the snake. I, yeah. I got it. Yeah. So so, anyways, I, I I like put this together in my head that the reason that the Book of Mormon version of the story has serpent with wings is because Joseph Smith, who wrote the Book of Mormon, was familiar with this image of certain <laughs> with wings being associated with the medical profession because they had mistakenly adopted this Greek image instead of the Jewish image that the Bible talks about, and so so like it's things like that 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 I recognized and went. Wait a minute. There, there's indications that this wait, Book wait, of you Mormon. You did all this on your mission? No, 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 no. I was, I was. Uh, I, Gospel doctrine. Yeah, teacher. because I said I was in oh, Japan. No, it, it was. Wait, you're in Japan. Yeah, it was like like oh, seven years ago okay. when I was living in, oh, okay. in Japan, and I was going to teach my daughter's primary uh, class. Yeah. And well, you, you know, you know what I teach. You know what I teach my sons. Uh, when they complain too much and start bitching and moaning too much, I go to the pet store and I grab a couple of rattlesnakes. And I, and, I th- right and I throw that at them just, just to teach <laughs> right. them a lesson. That's the kind of father I am. All right. Yeah. yeah you, and then and then you, you hold up the antidote and you right. say, "Look at me. You look, look at me. Look at me. Right. Ask for the antidote. Yeah. <laughs> but get on your knees. Okay. I'm get on add, your goddamn knees. <laughs> I'm adding Tom Perry. <laughs> Uh, and, and then, then the the other one that fits into that same category I've talked about before with with Corinthians and uh, you know that th- this was another gospel doctrine lesson I was trying to prepare for and look at the origin of telestial and try to figure out how it fits and I I saw that the way that Paul wrote Corinthians is this binary structure where you've got heavenly things on one side and earthly things you know corruptible and incorruptible and there's no room for a third made-up category, even though the JST superimposes on it. And that, that was like this moment, hey, we've got Tom video. Hey, we've got Tom on Rock video. On. Look at that. Look at that Can chrome dome. Me? Yeah. Yeah. I like it. And, uh, you know, so it, it, that's my third. Did yeah, you, it was uh, those kinds of experiences, reading the scriptures and like going, maybe I am smarter than Joseph Smith. And that opened up a lot of... Oh, that's some loud breathing. Yeah, John. Some loud nose that's breathing. John. He just sprinted around. <laughs> He's really, really mad about this scripture thing. Yeah. He's yeah. Did, Glenn, did, uh, did you ever teach DNC as gospel doctrine teacher? Yeah, I'm sure I did. Though did this, th- this was a DNC course, and so I was going outside of the DNC to get the. The, the references from the original source in Corinthians, you know. Mm-hmm. So but did was, you yeah. did you did you read the entire section of one thirty two and did that bother you or was that no. not part of it? That wasn't no. part of it. I, I didn't read the entire one thirty two until we did it for Mormon Expression. 
and that, you're and that, like, oh and my god! Like, as we're do as we're recording the podcast, I'm reading these things for the first time and going, "Holy shit! Really? It says that? That is crazy!" Like I did some research ahead of time and I saw uh, so, some things, but it was it was that process. So it wasn't no that that wasn't the gospel doctrine scripture thing. All right, who's who's up next? Number three. Your third reason. Let's go with the youngest. Uh, I'll, I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. So uh, I think my third, I, I'm actually just picking it. I mean, this one was very important. It, it was kind of the instigating issue, at least, uh, yeah, for me. But I don't know. I, I, I'm putting it third. Whatever. Screw you. I'm doing <laughs> what I want. Um, you go. Uh, it, it, yeah, so it's, it was Prop 8 for me. And it wasn't even something that I went through in real time. It was, I was actually on my mission I didn't uh, when it all kind of went through, and I got I came back from a mission early 2009. I'm sorry, every time I say that, Randy's like, "You're so young," but <laughs> it's the truth. Um, but anyway, it was uh, yeah that just the wake of that was was really impactful to me. It was just, and I don't really have is it's uh, it, you know I, I think we all kind of know why this type of thing would be irksome. It is rather irksome, you know? so. I don't know. I think it's like pretty self-evident. I mean, maybe it's not, but it was for me. Is this top three thing going to go on too long? I don't know. It could be the whole podcast. It it, yeah. it depends on if they're all as long as mine or if they're as short as yours. You'll see. Right. Exactly. All right. So I'm done. Who's, who else? <laughs> Prop eight. Irksome. Enough side. Prop eight. Boom. Irksome. It's gross. I mean, that. You know, the way that they were t- treating gay people, and it was weird that they were getting involved in a... Having people go out and proselyte, like... Exactly. Like, That's hit up their the, neighbors and... Yeah. It was that. It was that kind of activism. Like, for some reason... And that and that's kind of messed up. I feel like that's... I almost feel a little bit bad about that because it wasn't until they were like, oh, they're bothering people? Like, they're bothering other people to come to this thing? Like, it's fine if you have those hateful thoughts or, you know, opinions on your own, but... When you try to make them into law, then that you just well, cross there, the There line. were a lot of things around. Like I was, I, again, I was living in Japan when this happened, so I didn't have the direct experience with it. But when I heard that that they were coming over the pulpit and sacrament meeting and saying, "If you've saved up money for a family vacation this year, why don't oh you put God. that towards the Prop Eight fund? You know, like fund our bigotry <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> instead of taking Yay! a family vacation because families first. You know, it's just." It, it it was it it was irksome. I don't think there's a better word. All right. Yeah, and, and people would be like on um, they would stand out on a street corner during that time and hold up a bunch of signs and uh, asking for people to honk and support. And when they, I'm sure every time that they got like the bird yeah. from someone, they just felt so righteous in their persecution in their yeah. blue shirts in their blue, sh- <laughs> in their blue <laughs> shirts. <laughs> All right, all right. <laughs> Randy, you're up. Okay. So this is in reverse chronological order. This was the this was the clincher, um, and a source of a lot of my anger. Um, and so number three is Brigham Young in all caps. He is such was such an asshole. Um, when, when you when you read, but, his how, books, but how did you go from thinking that he was God's prophet? To an asshole. Yeah, yeah. How, uh, because the emotional tie had broke. Because I remember this is number three. So I don't know what that means. I, I said minor in chronological order, so I'm going in reverse chronological order. So with one and two, the kind of the emotional tie was already broken. 
and then Brigham Young took me home. So then I, I would say that Brigham Young's your number one, and that you would should start with the other, like reverse your reverse. You don't order. get to tell me. What, I, what, right. I just don't. Right. Un- I just don't understand. <laughs> who the fuck do you think you are? I, I'm just somebody who wants to understand what you're saying, Randy. That's look. All. This isn't a Tarantino movie. This is yeah. a podcast. Right. Just you yeah. should have a right. linear like, like kind of forward <laughs> momentum. <laughs> no, like. Uh, Brigham Young, like one and two, took me into like a uncomfortable faith crisis. Number three, Brigham Young, uh, put me right into the anger phase. And I know some people think I'm still in my anger phase, but I'm not. Prove um, it. <laughs> prove it. <laughs> the evidence says contrary, dude. Hey, could you get your fucking head in the middle of the screen? <laughs> I just moved this thing. What the hell else can I get for you? Uh, look, <laughs> just look on better? your computer yeah. screen. <laughs> there you go. Good Tom boy. would be a Tom would be a killer Freaking wedding photographer. <laughs> yeah. Just get on with your list and quit worrying about me. Yeah. So when I when I read quotes from Brigham Young, where you know he's he's saying if 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 a black if a white person mixes their seed with a black person, the the only way to atone is death this will always be so black people will never get the priesthood until every last white soul gets the priesthood first um the um you know the javelin in the heart quote um that but that was about uh, uh, uh adultery yeah well I, but he was promoting <laughs> you know murder in that in that scenario if your wife cheats on you oh yeah well, you and Mike Tannehill are in the same boat. Exactly. You got to yeah. spike it with all of Noah's animals. <laughs> um, you know, and then finding out that he supported slavery and it was actually legalized it. I like watching the Tom size now. Those are fun. I know. They're good. Um, <laughs> and Tom, this one's for you. Tom, this one's for you. Um, when the, uh, the U.S. Army came and found all the bones for Mountain Meadows. Yeah. Um, they're the ones that buried them. And then they put up a little makeshift monument that said uh, something like, um, you know, justice will be served. And then vengeance, Brig- is, Brigham, mine. vengeance is mine. Vengeance yeah. is mine. The and, the Lord. Yeah. And then Brigham came with his entourage and he just, you know, came upon that monument that the army had uh, put up and he kind of snickered and had them change it to justice or vengeance has been served or something like that. Yeah, and they tore it down or whatever. And the, yeah, and and he just was such, he was such a repulsive person. And then and then the Thomas Marsh, you know, Thomas Marsh comes back, a poor old man, hat in hand, and Brigham stands him up in general conference and publicly taunts him, and then says, "I can have any woman I want. Look at him; he's only a year and a half older than me, and I can have any woman I want. He is an old man." Uh, he just the arrogance. I mean, I, I honestly think he was a mega, megalomaniacal sociopath. Yeah, that's that's what eventually the conclusion I came to by coming, you know, reading all these quotes. So Brigham, I mean, I just wanted I was I didn't even like having a degree from Brigham Young University. Yeah, right. So that was my number three. I'm so done. Your hate, your hatred runs deep, dude. Right with Brigham, yeah. I actually kind of like Joseph. <laughs> Still or then? No, like even now, I find him uh, peculiar, peculiar and interesting, and and you know, 
I, I think I, I think I'd enjoy hanging out with Joseph, even if I thought he was a total idiot. I bet you wouldn't. Well, who knows? Yeah. Why would you say that, Glenn? Why? You know Randy so well. He doesn't. He doesn't know who he'd like to hang out with. Oh no, he knows Joseph Smith better. Oh. I don't know. I. I it, it's just reflecting like how my own uh, attitude towards Joseph Smith has shifted. Where I used to really like him, and the more I've thought about what he was actually like, he probably. He, I don't know. He, he, he probably was just a real pompous jerk, and I wouldn't enjoy hanging out with him. Because he, because he, because he would Kinda expect like me to, right? Yeah. <laughs> Too many similarities. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 He'd never pay for pizza. He would never pay for pizza. Yeah. Uh, he'd, he'd always, always have the excuse they forgot his wallet. Or oh, 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 shit! Oh, I'll get the next dude. one next yeah. time, dude. Next time. Yeah. And 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 like if you're if you're trying to decide what toppings to have on the pizza, he's always going to play the "Thus saith the Lord" Trump card. We've got to right, have. Exactly. Well, not only that, but he's going to be checking out your wife the whole time. Yeah. While I go out to get the pizza. He'll be hitting on her. That's his MO. Right. (laughs) Yeah. All right, uh, John, you're number three. Uh, My number three one is the racism. So that that was still an active thing when I was a kid, you know, where... where, um, the church had its all of its racist policies were um, still in place, and then you know, like in childhood, that that reversed through a declaration. But there was saying that the past leaders had been wrong. There were no apologies. There was no change of the theological justification myths, the stories. You know, the so even eight. Eight years, ten years later, or whatever, in seminary, I was still being taught the racist idea that black people were, you know, the the unvaliant people in the preexistence. So the fence sitters. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, so just, the just racism was to, just. Go ahead. Just, just I was just saying. So, so it was just it, that was just horribly offensive, and and we didn't learn anything from it. And by not by by just stopping the policy, but not admitting error and not repenting, um, the church immediately. F- did the same thing, you know, with every other kind of bigotry that it wanted to go after next. So they gave up on that one, at least in terms of uh, national politics, and immediately squashed the ERA. And then, obviously, as soon as as soon as that had happened, they started going after gay people. Well, you know, so the bigotry is still there, and 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 that's just the mo. And nobody ever learned anything from giving up the racism, at least in terms of the policy, but not in terms of any any. Um, not, not, not in terms of admitting error. So. It, it's, it's very ironic that it's that classical letter of the law, but not spirit of the law dilemma. That they, they, never mind. Well, the, one so, thing that's, <laughs> the, the one thing that's consistent is that um, Mormons like bristled, if you called them racist, in the 80s and 90s. Um, but they were. Their, their policy was... And now, you know, history is just kind of rinsing and repeating. Um, they hate being called bigots when it comes to homosexuality. You know, they just want to euphemize it by saying, uh, you know, we're for the family. We're pro-family. We're not anti-gay. And uh, it's just funny to, to, to have that struggle in my youth of being embarrassed by the, you know, the policy that, that was yeah. 
you know, didn't didn't change until I was four years old. I mean, I was I was alive <laughs> for four yeah. years when that policy was still in place. Hey, well, so, John, let me ask you this: If you, because I, I like this idea of like learning from it, you know, learning from the experience with the with the the priesthood ban and how you see the treatment of the ERA and homosexuals as an extension of the same kind of disease that gave rise to this to the priesthood ban in the first place i mean what would you say how what would change within mormonism if they if they were to learn from that from the priesthood ban and from being from that racist doctrine and then disavowing it so if they, if there had been any learning from it, if they had said, "Whoa, we really were racist. We were we were denying it the whole time, but we had a racist policy. We were racist. We were wrong. We are so sorry. We apologize up and down. Mm-hmm. And most specifically, our leaders were wrong." Then, mm-hmm. if we were to have the leaders, um, if the leaders were to admit error, then that would that would correct what's going to be my number two issue <laughs> okay all right all right all right stay tuned, stay tuned. Yeah. and, and I, right. I want i want to address that question though jake because yeah. we're, we're we're preparing a, a minisode on this lowry nelson series of letters and the the really long three-page letter that he wrote to the first presidency in 1947 he addresses yeah. that issue and he's, he says mm-hmm. he, he's he's talking not just about racism but about ethnocentricity ethnocentricity yeah and that that if you're able to recognize the ethnocentricity behind the racist policy mm-hmm. then you wouldn't go and turn it around to the squash the ERA or to to, to right. fight against gay because you would get out of that ethnocentric viewpoint that that Mormonism is so still completely ensconced in but that that was what Lowry Nelson was suggesting he was saying I hope that we as an institution as a church aren't so conservative that we can't change and address these needs that we're seeing in humanity and mankind and that we can eschew this ethnocentrism that's creeping into our church 1947 right. my hero loved that but I, I think that yeah, that's yeah. that's what it would be for the church to recognize it and repent of it Right. So it would be, I mean, beyond, you know, admitting and doing this kind of external, well, this very explicit, you know, penitence of apologizing for it, beyond that would be kind of this cultural shift of recognizing ethnocentricity of, or centrism of the way of their worldview and kind of approaching that with some humility going forward. Yeah. Is that not, what you're saying? Not just humility as a, as lip service and as a speech act, but like real. Actual right, humility. actual humility. Yeah. Right, right, right. Okay, interesting, interesting. Which I think is mine. One of mine number numbers here. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> All right. So Tom, number three. Is it my turn already? Uh, already? Yeah, you're number five, man. I'm gonna go with um, prayers not being answered. Be my number three. I know it's not necessarily Mormonism-centric, but that's going to be a big one for me. I used to find ways to justify, you know, the kind of the Mormon spin to how they're answered. You know, like, oh, there must be a meaning to him not being not answering it the way you want it to be answered right. or answering it through other people or whatever horse shit is, you know, the flavor of the day. <laughs> and I just... I just I don't know. I just it always bothered me because there were certain prayers that I felt like that were answered, 
but left confusing answers. And well, what you, you really t- uh, told a heartfelt, emotional story about your child who's umbilical cord was wrapped around its neck. I can't remember if it was a he or she. Yeah. He, yeah. he wrapped around his neck. Um, and then the, the obstetrician wasted valuable time having a little prayer before he went in and pulled the umbilical cord out from around your son's neck. And that was something that was really hard for you to let go because mm-hmm. you thought that was really a strong answer to a prayer. Yeah, I thought it was a, a miraculous intervention by God through this, you know, worthy priesthood holder, which happened to be my doctor at the time. When you say, when <laughs> who you also say, happened to have you know years and years and years of medical training, but yeah, yes. yeah side note, yeah. <laughs> but that you, you eventually got over that because of all the other stuff that wasn't getting. I answered. don't know that. I'm, I can't. I can't for sure say that I've even shaken that off because I still have like an extremely vivid recollection of that night um because i actually remember after all that was happening and i found an empty hospital room and i locked the door and i just fell to my knees and i was just sobbing and i remember just saying whatever it takes if you need to take me instead go right ahead but please just please just let my my son pull through this and my wife is obviously struggling too and I just remember thinking, you going to take my entire family from me? Just take me instead. And if, and if you let my son survive and let my wife survive, I devote my life to you. I still remember saying those things. And so, I mean, I even get that twinge of guilt right now thinking <laughs> that, I, that I made that promise and that commitment. So, I don't know. Remember, remember your promise, Jamie? <laughs> Oh, oh, God. Jeez. <laughs> I yeah. the knife there. Asshole. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Was I the only one thinking that? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, no, really, I, I really I, am an asshole. I, I, was, I was thinking about respect, you know. I mean, if we get to it, we're going to talk about respect later. But because... <laughs> Because Tom has this this gratitude for what happened. I mean, this was a huge case in his life. To even question it or doubt it seems disrespectful. I'm, I'm guessing that's how I would feel in that situation. Yeah, that it would I be like, like I I watched or I held my two year old in my arms for about ten seconds. I was looking at his face and he wasn't breathing. So I feel like I understand that 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 terror that Tom went through. So I, I felt like putting a little levity in there. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> pissing all great. over my was, experience. Yeah, I wasn't pissing. Yeah. I was just trying to make it. Ju- you know, just trying to, you know, be funny. <laughs> no, it was funny. I mean, it it was funny. But Tom, that that's so. I guess I'm I'm still having trouble why well, like well, understanding well, when you say that, that that you have trouble with her or you know, that's one of your issues. But you just told a story that that was because, kind of the opposite of that. No, right? but that was that was because well, Randy suggested like Tom was talking about prayers not being answered yeah. and Randy went back to say remember this one so time you talked about a, one that was yeah oh, so. oh, okay so, got it sorry, sorry. so just in in context of the prayer thing <clears throat> when I even when I turned 14 I actually did the whole recreation of the Joseph Smith in the sacred woods yeah I didn't go to New York or any of that stuff but that was your problem that was my problem that's what the geographical area yeah. Dick. um <laughs> but I but I rode my bike all by myself and I spent I don't know probably four or five hours up in the woods all by myself in complete solitude and just praying nonstop. And <laughs> what's funny is I remember 
like shading that memory at the time thinking oh god was listening he was paying attention i just wasn't worthy or i just wasn't paying close enough attention or my thoughts were telling me something that i just wasn't listening to or whatever it was yeah but now in hindsight now i'm looking at it i'm like i just wasn't getting anything at all and i was trying to fill in the gaps of (laughs) not getting anything with you know with the mormon shading into the into the gaps and it i don't know yeah. i i actually prayed a lot a lot and you know like the whole enos thing where he would, yeah that's what oh i was my thinking God, yes, i wanted I to this. do it. yeah so <laughs> i and i still and i still pray in fact yeah so it's whether it's just a kind of a method out of habit or if it just brings me peace and comfort or whatever and i still pray with my family See, this is why the 80-year-old listener wanted the gay guy and the one who still prays. I, I pray as well, too. But I just don't, I don't have the same, you know, I don't have the same conception of it in terms of this very literal, fleshy God guy who's going to talk back or whatever to you in this kind of, like he, like he's a human being and we're a human being. We're going to hear this kind of conversation. And so is it, more like, it, is it more like meditation than prayer then, John? Yeah, so I would say so. So, what essentially you're that there are there are two different things for that that like I say, there's two different kinds of prayer. The one is public prayer, where you are are um, it's not a ramiumpton prayer where you are trying to show your your glory to the other people, but rather what you are doing is you are trying to get the feel of all the people around, and you're trying to encapsulate the feeling. And the spirit of what they're all feeling, in or in, ter- in terms of bringing you all together in community, in that kind of thing. That's then public prayer. Private prayer. I think that whether or not you, whatever you're thinking about God, you can you can be also looking in on yourself. And and private prayer, therefore, is introspective, and it is about self-reflection. It's about reflection on life and a reflection on meaning and reflection on purpose. But in as much as then you read literary stuff, when you're reading um, um, stories that people have written that are coming from time periods when people do believe in physical magic, then you are then when people are doing something and they're expecting i mean all these stories that you guys are talking about where you're expecting then you're gonna have this booming voice that's like in the in a temple movie or like a mormon visitor center from the 60s you know joseph (laughs) um you don't join any churches or whatever it's gonna happen (laughs) you know i mean this is like science fiction stuff as opposed to you know the the real real aspect of what it could be useful for. So well, it's I science was, fiction to you at the time. That's the kind of expectation that we have as believers. I, would, I understand. I understand that. The, I understand that. That's the problem that this institution is is promoting that view. I'm not saying that you were. You're not to blame for that. This institution is doing oh, that. Right. So, John, would you, uh, you 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 characterize public like two kinds, public and private? But I would say that there's two kinds of private prayer. Um, one that Mormons are kind of taught and conditioned to do is kind of like the, um, you know, the Christmas wish list kind yeah. of prayer. And the other kind, which is, I think, the kind that you engage in would be more of the introspective, the general contemplative, um, you know, not expecting that God is going to give you a raise or, <laughs> uh, you know. Right. 
uh, help help you cover a bill when you you know your tithing has right. taken where's away. my keys right <laughs> yeah right yeah well of course so obviously that's like i'm saying if you're encouraged by an institution or whatever it is to believe in physical magic those kind of things like that you're gonna your keys are gonna materialize or any of those kind of things it doesn't mean that if you aren't more in tune with um everything that's going on in life in the universe and knowledge and everything else that you aren't going to be able to better understand the universe around you and be able to better navigate and do better things in terms of your job you're talking about getting like a better job or that kind of thing in other words it's not a matter that part but it's not that's not magic in other words it's not magic in a physical sense there's a real kind of magic which is the magic of being able to um transcend things being able to have you know have i i um conceptualize ideas being able to move beyond your limitations those kind of things yeah but that all sounds like internalized like goal setting yeah you know? the secret that's what that sounds like <laughs> i was gonna say that <laughs> but all right whoa <laughs> that was oh, not, not the shot. secret no, okay no i mean i don't I, but it's it's you know no, it's the, the ability the secret, to, to so Jake, secret? now you have to see John glare at you when you say exactly. Now I'm like sweating here. Oh, geez. <laughs> have you seen the video of the secret? They have. They actually dramatize a guy sitting in his couch wishing for more money, and then he walks out jovially to his mailbox, and there's a check there. Okay, well, so then it's not like that. <laughs> it's not about visualizing something, and then you get it. Yeah. So that's that's wish. That's the genie. Yeah. God. That's do ut des. I give in order that you will give to me. You know, the old fashioned kind of that's that's a that's an earlier stage of religion that a lot of people are, are stuck in, which is God, if I if you will I will give you I'll sacrifice I'll sacrifice my child. I will have a human sacrifice in order to if you if you destroy my enemies or whatever. I will give in order that you will give. You know, we actually had a mission program that that was based on Sacrifice this concept. Children. No, it, it was it was called Seyakudendo, which is covenant missionary work. That it was based on that DNC chapter or verse: "I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say, but you know when you don't, you have no promise." So that it, if you tell the Lord, "I will do X, Y, and Z," if you do this, yeah, like. You give me more baptisms, I can deliver yeah. more Book of Mormons. Then you can actually bind the Lord to yeah, your right. will, right? Just right. like every yep. fast Sunday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and if, you guys, if you guys remember, so that's, that's, that's we were stuff coming out of the twenty five hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah. know, no, I, I wasn't that. I'm not that old. It was just like <laughs> 1992, 1993. Now Glenn's the Highlander. Yeah, yeah but if, if you guys remember, uh, we were taught to teach um, our converts. Uh, the four steps of prayer. You know, first you open, uh, you, you addressing Heavenly Father, step one. Step two is things you're thankful for. So then you go through and you're like, okay, I got all these good things. And you, you, you go through that list. Step three, do you guys remember? The blessings, the things that you want. The things that you want. And that's where <laughs> Mormonism teaches you to go, this is my wish list, God. Yeah. <laughs> and you go down your wish list, right? Um, which for... Uh, well over a decade, I was praying for my older brother Jimmy's soft, a heart to be softened so that he would come back to the church. Um, so you go through the wish list, and then you close in the name of Jesus Christ. So the way that Mormon, Mormonism teaches how to pray 
is this wish list thing. Right. It's really, it's really like writing a letter to Santa Claus every day. Right. And I, I'm not, I'm not trying to argue that that the LDS Church and Mormon upbringing isn't an insanely primitive kind of religion. It is. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy how backwards it is that it still exists and all that kind of thing. You know, but it does, of course. <laughs> Right, right, but it's yeah. I mean, but when you talk about John, your your vision of like the utility of of prayer as a way of you know, trans, transcending oneself and being introspective and that type of thing, I mean that that's very touching to me. But it's also equally touching, John, you know, Tom, the the idea of like Tom sitting in this yeah, empty hospital room, you know, trying to draw, trying to trying to hammer out a deal with God for the you know the life of his son. It's just like. But well, in that you, moment, do you say, no, you just sit there in silence. You don't pray. You don't, you know, like he'd be, he'd be equally powerless in either case. But at least when he was in the hospital room, I mean, at least when he was praying, he thought there was some something. Well, well when you, that's, when you're, that's what I'm saying with the whole, that all that uh, description that you just laid out, John, I, I see that as meditation and I see what I'm doing or any sort of form of prayer actually trying to communicate to something out there yeah whether and right and i think the assumption is is that something is listening right the mormon god or whatever it is you want to say it is and in a way it's like okay if i can communicate with you you're going to understand what i'm asking and that way there can be a little back and forth right like i'm not just talking to nothing that way if i say i will be willing to do this i'll fast for 24 hours and that way the investigator will let us in or whatever it is. Mm. That's that's the kind of prayer that I see. See, when I try meditation now, it's just an easy form. It's like the gateway drug to sleep. I just do it. <laughs> and then I fall asleep. But if I'm praying, like there's somebody listening, right. then I'm like articulating my thoughts like, okay, uh, I don't want to screw this up. Okay, dear God, no, uh, thou shalt listen to what I say. <laughs> So you got to be formal. Yeah. That was the other step you missed, Randy. You got to be formal. Yeah, yeah. But the, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but in that moment, Tom, when you're in that hospital, you are profoundly feeling utterly helpless. Like you have no control of that situation, right? right. Absolutely. And and the the thought that there is someone powerful enough to gain control of this horrific situation that could happen is comforting, is it not? Of course it is. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's like the only thing. You, like you said, you're, you're in a desperate state. You're grasping yeah. at straws, anything. Like if there, I mean, you see this, you know, in movies all the time, people saying, if there's anything out there, I've never asked for anything. This is my one shot. Please save my family, my kids, me, or whatever it is. And if, that's if, why it's if, such. If this, yeah. is, if this is a Hail Mary, so be it. But, you know, make it happen. See, yeah. th- this this could be in my top three, actually, you know, that we're, we're having this conversation because I'm remembering all these times where I actually flipped and instead of that being comforting for me, I started resenting it. You know, I'm like, right. if God is omniscient and omnipotent, why do I need to even tell him that my kid is sick and needs help in the first place and try to, to bargain with him. Or even if, if I bring out the oil and I lay my hands on and do the blessing, like that's going to be something that he'll respect, but he w- maybe, but you right. know, somebody who doesn't have the priesthood and doesn't have the consecrated oil, they're shit out of luck. 
You know, like th- right. I, my my mind, and I'm like, this is this is a, you know, like John said, primitive. This is this is a magical practice. We're trying to exercise magic and yeah, we're power. Going the, we're going and, to the shaman, you know, yeah. in a yeah, time of it, desperation. It, and and you know, so it 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 switched from being a sense of comfort to me to being a sense of of resentment almost to to where I'd get in when in fights with my ex-wife because she's like i want you to give our kids a blessing because they're sick and i'm like you could give them a blessing why can't they just why can't they just pray to god and ask him to make them better does god not right. love them enough to just do that because they know, ask because he has a you, need the, you need the oil you know yeah, like that's the, the, and the, and the problem with it is is that this institution that has corrupted this whole thing right. is causing you to have ha, you know is causing it to be awful and horrific in all of those bad ways because I mean I have given I've done administration on multiple occasions where it was an intensely powerful moving thing and what it's doing is it's expressing the love that you have for the person the feelings for them they're feeling comforted they're feeling all the connection that we all have together in community i mean when when my friend asked me and his another friend to do administration this is the first time i'd done it as an adult because i'd never when i was a kid anyway it was i was not ordained in community of christ priesthood or whatever i just participated of course and um and and in doing that he said you look i don't i don't expect you know miraculous healing i don't know what i believe about any of these kind of things but i do know what i believe about uh connections and friendship and and the and the importance of being able to um be supported by by my friends in this way and if and and those circumstances will you administer to me and i said of course i will you know and so, and it was intensely moving and very powerful. And and I've done that multiple times for all kinds of different people. And I think that that's, I think it's really important and powerful. And it's not because though the problem with it is, is then if you think it's this magic trick or something like that, you know, that's the problem. So I think that when Tom is describing this incredible experience that he's having, where it's just, this is this is a pivotal life moment. But the problem with it is, is that it's where this church is teaching that there is some kind of magic bargaining that you're going to have with this Superman guy. Yeah, <laughs> but know, even to. but even if it's not magic that that God is granting your wishes, even if it's like Dumbo's black feather, and it's just this object that you focus on that makes you feel like okay, because I've been administered to or whatever. I, I'm able to focus my faith on this, and my faith is going to make me whole. And it's not about God or anything; it's about me believing, you know, like a placebo effect or something. And I've got this. It, yeah, but I don't even think it's about believing. It's, so what? So so, but but you, but you're talking about this great sense of community, and yes, that's what's that's what's it's a human thing that we're yeah. what we're doing, where we're all connecting with each other through you know meaningful ritual that has happened. You know, throughout all of this time, and 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 is anyway. So I, I think that actually it is in, intensely powerful and intensely important. It doesn't mean that magically he's going to be healed or anything like that. And I never tell the story yeah. that it means. And then they were, and then the person is immediately cured of cancer or something like that. That's not the point of it, right? The you know so, the point is that connection and that comfort and that you know at that time in that person's life where we're talking about like for Tom, just this intense pivotal moment in a person's life. 
Yeah. So, so it sounds like it sounds like the way you're describing it, John, is different than what even the this the Dumbo elephant, uh, the you know Dumbo's feather type thing that you were saying, about one, because yeah. right, because in in that case, in the case of Dumbo's feather, the object of like the the you know the 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 end goal or the object of of the whole exercise was to achieve the miraculous result. It was still right. Dumbo so that he believed would in a lie. <laughs> no, but, so if he believed in a lie, that's why he did. <laughs> In right, words, but it's, this yeah. is not about a lie. There's no lie. But even if he does, I mean, because because it's not centered around the miraculous outcome of having a magical experience where somebody's miraculously healed. It's about it's creating. A, it's it's about creating that that friendship and community and bond that uh, to help that person in that time. Yeah, it's, and it's it doesn't really rely or try and tap into something supernatural. Is that what you're saying, John? Not supernatural. What I'm saying is, again, metaphysical. So, in other words, something that is not physical magic, but rather our idea, the realm of ideas, the thing that we're all able to transcend by understanding different ideas, you know? And, and I, and I uh, like, this is my personal issue with it. So, I'm not trying to extrapolate that on, on society or anything. I'm just saying, for me, when you, when you start talking in the language of ritual... You're using ritualistic symbols that, that to me, are, are too close to the Dumbo's black feather. That, you know, like, and I'll give you an example. If, if my dad wants to tell me something, I can't really just sit down and have a conversation with him and, be, and have him be very open. If I really want to know what he's feeling, I ask him to give me a father's blessing. Because then he lays his hands on my head, and he closes his eyes, and he prays to God, and he asks God to bless me with all the things that he really has in his heart that he feels like I need. And that's an extra, extra layer of vulnerability there. Yeah. Yeah. And so instead of having this like direct communication where we could just sit down and talk, it has to go through this ritual kind of thing to get that connection. And and that's probably where I've got some resentment to it or, or whatever that I like, I'd like to remove that layer and just have the connection without feeling like it has to be shrouded in ritual to have meaning. Well, and what John was describing is great, and I think it's you know probably the best approach. But for Mormons, it's super important to be able to get an answer to a prayer that now you can use that for the next couple years or forever as this testimony building block. And, I mean, how many times do you hear a testimony meeting where they say, you know, and then I prayed and then this happened. I made a deal with God and then this happened. Those are those spiritual experiences that that almost... I don't know, redefine how they their relationship with the church is because, you know, it can be kind of that bulletproof vest to any doubts or gospel doctrine problems or whatever it is because they can always look back and say, hey, remember that one time when I fasted and prayed or I was in the hospital room and I made a deal with God and he came through for me? Remember that? Yeah, those are, te- those are testimony meeting stories that, pe- that Mormons love. Well, because they they, right. they put everything on that. That's they put all their chips on those spiritual experiences. And they're like all this other stuff just doesn't matter because if that happened, which they feel like it did, then that's it. That's all they need. And then they'll just wait till the next one, and then they'll use that one to you know, whatever. All right, let's move on to number two. All right, <laughs> well, that was interesting. That was a, that was a fascinating discussion about that's prayer, good. though. It made me think about it very differently. Yeah, that was good. So it's yeah. Glenn number two. Yeah, this is this is simple. The Book of Abraham, like when <laughs> when, when most people's number one. Yeah, yeah, and 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 for me that you know 
when when I started, or when I realized this means that Joseph Smith was intentionally creating a, a fraud, it just opened up uh, Joseph Smith to other criticism, you know, and so like all the Fanny Alger and polygamy and things like that started coming in. But it was it was the the Book of Abraham that really broke joseph smith opened to me because up to that point he had been kind of bulletproof truman madsen uh you know a, a hero and uh then you know like one, once i found out about that 1967 discovery of the papyri when, and when did you find out about that what about what year do you think um, I, I was living in japan at the time so it was between 2007 and 2010 so Did you ever look up the, the it, it apologetic was, theories, the catalyst or the missing scroll theory? Did no, that it satisfies you. It, it was no, I, I didn't. It, and, it, and it was it was a result of participating on Mormon Expression. And uh, who, who Chris, what, what's his last name that he, he, he went to Pepperdine? Oh, he was like oh, one of the Chris first Smith. five. Chris Smith. Wasn't that one of the first five? Christopher Mormon Smith, Expression? maybe. Oh, yeah. 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 All right. Yeah, yeah. He's expert on that. Yeah, yeah. And, Claremont and so, College, right? Claremont I think College. Yeah. right, right, Something right. Like that, yeah, and and yep. and so I, I I emailed him back and forth after I I listened to that episode because I had a lot of questions and and just asked him to send me, you know, PDFs, articles, and so I started reading them, and it didn't take me very long uh, to go through that and go, wow, yeah, you know, but it made sense. It, it just it kind of clicked to me. Like I didn't have John's. 16 year old revelation about the book of abraham but it didn't take me very long to to see it for what it was and then there was also there was some youtube video that's still out there that is is about an hour long that tells the whole story of michael chandler it dramatizes it in a nice way but it, it's it's made by uh some evangelical group that at the yeah, end they, i've seen it i've seen yeah, it, yeah. They, they try to like bring you into their church kind of thing but but it, it was like seeing that helped uh kind of unravel the whole book of abraham for me and, and that 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 was when a lot because i i already had a lot of questions and doubts and things that i was dissatisfied with at that point but but knocking down joseph smith the peg uh was huge for me yeah that was i mean i'm i'm I went second, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah my number two, I, I think I would lump uh, Book of Mormon historicity and Book of Abraham in there because it was nice. I mean, those those ones really stuck with me because chronologically they occurred after the whole Prop 8 kind of initial emotional shock for me. And it was a lot easier for me to grasp onto because the, 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 the arguments against the Book of Abraham or Book of Mormon historicity, I mean, they're – I, I, they were a lot more easy to grasp for me because I feel like the 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 arguments around them are a little more coalesced than like you know trying to I'm just I'm just not very good at like history and figuring out what are you know really discerning what's a good source or what's a bad source of like a, a historical account but you know with the Book of Mormon. Uh, anachronisms or stuff like Deuteronomy or or Book of Abraham where they have the the what is it the recurring lacunae or what what is it called hey that's lagamina hey box but it's basically there was there was some damage sustained to the 1967 scroll uh, the, the book of abraham scroll that was discovered in the, in the, at the met at the met yep. right anyway um there was some damage sustained by it while it was rolled up and 
what they did, what some some researchers did, is they looked at the distance between the because it, it, the the damage had occurred while it was rolled up. It it, it it there were tears in like multiple places in the scroll because it all hit at the same place and it tore multiple uh, pages within that that roll. Anyway, right. so what and they did Joseph, is they Joseph Smith didn't know that uh, the the guy standing over the person. Had a, was supposed to have a jackal's head, right? Right, and that's when he drew in a dude's head. That's and he drew in like the knife, lacuna. Yeah, yeah that's what thing is. right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, anyways, but they uh, some some researchers actually mathematically used you know calculus and mathematically figured out how long the scroll, the the longest possible, uh, uh, I'm not say length, that the scroll could be and still have those that that. Um, those damages anyway and basically it excluded the idea that there was like this kind of book of breathings and at the very beginning and then like all this book of abraham bonus content on the edge of, on the end of the scroll <laughs> lots of um, don't forget the book it, of joseph right right anyway the editor's cut right exactly the director's cut <laughs> right, it's never right, as good yeah. it's never as good yeah deleted scenes, um, <laughs> deleted scenes. <laughs> right right all the bonus content i like that <laughs> but, <laughs> look at john's shaking his head um well, but anyway it's 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 impossible because the book of abraham is <laughs> the text of it is um dependent on the king james version of the bible so it doesn't matter right. what what how much space you know the mathematicians can find out in the scroll or whatever because the whole thing is dependent on the Bible, which is is itself has nothing to do with with an, any kind of historical Abraham. There is no historical Abraham. You know, it's written um, whatever it is a thousand years after Abraham supposedly lived, and all of that text we can watch the textual transmission from the original authors of the different sources that were combined together and then brought down through you know monk after monk after monk after monk until you get to the King James translators, and then that from that. Um, that's the source because if you it would never be that those same phrases you know would ever get would ever get quoted directly you know into a text right if, it, so if they were working with the original source right. text, so it's it absolutely dependent on the king james version of the bible so that doesn't matter because we already have the entire um um textual criticism transmission of the text in other words it comes from there so yeah, I mean, and that's this is exactly so, why I was. Yeah, Jake. These, I know. Stupid. Anyway, I should have figured no, that no, out when I was sixteen. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It, that, that's actually no. That was that was a great. I mean, that that's a perfect example of why I gravitated toward those those issues after the initial shakeup, like with Prop Eight and being like, oh, they're you know being mean to gay people, and it, it's like my whole worldview was shaken up, and it was it was really nice for me to be able to grasp on to something. It seemed like the boundaries of the conversation were kind of more easily defined, and it was a lot easier to say, "Okay, what should we expect to see, and what do we see, and does that what does that indicate?" So, anyway, that's my that's my number two. Yeah, a, a lot of people don't realize that the 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 first oh John's leaving right when I'm about to say this. I want him to confirm it. John, just say it, right. Randy. Just come, Just come back. Come yeah, the the, the first um, uh, confirmed historical figure in the Bible is David. Everyone before that is a myth. So, John. Yes. I just said that the the, the first uh, historically confirmed 
um, character in the Bible is David. Everyone before that is a myth, probably an amalgamation of people that yep. may have lived in the past. And everything that we know about David in the in the Bible, with the exception of the idea that he is a the founder of the Davidic royal house, um, everything else is a myth. So there's nothing else, nothing that is in the Bible that we know about. Legend. Well, whatever you want to call it. It's all written after the fact, and it is all actually more or less referred. It's all court literature that's written, you know, a couple centuries, many many centuries later, and it's actually to refer to um, people like in the court of Hezekiah and Manasseh and Josiah, and they are they are writing it as if it was David in order to because they can't they can't criticize the actual king, you know. So, so there's all kinds hmm. of negative criticism of David, and you think, oh, well, why would they write all of this horrible stuff about David if it wasn't true? Because <laughs> they <laughs> were going after the king. <laughs> and, and the reason is is because they're actually criticizing Hezekiah and Manasseh and, and Josiah. Anyway, so the point of it is, is that everything that's written about that is from about a much later time period. We'd have, we know nothing about David, but like you say, Randy, that, that, that's the earliest figure that we would that that is in the Bible that's actually historical, but we'd know nothing about the historical figure. But Goliath is is real. Yeah, yeah. Except for Goliath, that absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Actually, I mean, that, that actually really happened. He was one badass Philistine, man. There's actually a there's actually a doublet in the Old Testament on the Goliath story, and um, there's actually another legend that's actually recorded in the Bible of the uh, of another guy that killed Goliath. So the Goliath myth actually Shaquille O'Neal. I don't remember the guy's name because he's not important. But anyway, the Goliath myth is actually a different hero killed Goliath, and that's a story that agglomed onto David. So we right. can even see that within the Bible itself. There's a there's a doublet, and Goliath is said to be killed by somebody else in in the Bible. So I wasn't saying that uh, everything that was written about David in the Bible was true. I was just saying yeah, that yeah. he's the earliest person that exa- is, is, is can be confirmed as a real person. Except you're, when you're searching with the Spirit, and then the Spirit. <laughs> okay, you don't need to whisper this, Glenn. Come on, yeah, Glenn. I'm going back don't. to the Aggie Land Smackdown because don't. because look, history is a flickering lamp, right. and you can't really know. You can't really know until the Spirit confirms to you. This. Right, right, right. Shut, shut the <laughs> flickering right, lamp. Greg, what's your number two, Randy? All right. Well, my number two is your number three, um, and the reason why it's so important to me was. I had had kind of this like uh, slow burning faith crisis from 2006 to 2008. And uh, I lived in Arizona, so we didn't have Prop 8. But my faith crisis buddy lived in Sacramento. So he was going through Prop 8. I was going through Prop 102. I was the high priest group leader. So they were asking me to make phone calls and to uh, put a sign in my yard to donate money. And I wrote him an email saying, I don't feel any of this stuff. I don't feel good about doing any of this stuff. Does this make me a bad Mormon? And that's really what um, started me down the fast track. Six months later, I was an atheist. Um, so the, and, and I've already talked about my history and guilt with homosexuality. You know, uh, Prop 22 when I was in California at the time, knocking on doors, making phone calls, um, and then, and then the moment I had with the gay professor at USC when he made me feel horrible, 
um, about how me and my Mormon dental students were, you know, would, would make fun of gay people. So I had built up all of this guilt and then Prop 8 happened. And that's, that's really what made the faith crisis something important for me to really sort out. Um, I was, I had spent two years with a slow burning doubt, but not willing to really engage, but that made it kind of a moral imperative. And that's why it's my number two. You know, in a lot of ways, Randy, I think your scenario and my scenario, as far as like being homophobic, I, I share that and it sucks to have to admit it, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I mean, when I was in high school, I had some of my football teammates would go out and gay bash, like actively gay bash. Um, one, one of the nights that they tried to get me to go out, uh, one of the guys pulled out a twenty two and shot the gay person. What? What? Yeah, and it, it was on the news. Uh, they didn't, of course, they didn't catch him because it was a kind of hit and run thing. Um, Wait, but you knew who had done it? Yeah. Holy crap! Did you tell anybody? Nope. Not until now, but the statute of limitations was up three years ago, biatch. Wait, so so did I mean the guy? I'm just trying to trying to make it. The guy didn't die; he survived. Um, Jesus. And and the guy was a total like gangbanger. So I didn't. I was scared for my own safety if I turned him in. And you know, I was a kid. I was like 17, and Mm -hmm. and but that guilt has always stuck with me. So, yeah, I was a horrible person. Nah. Matt, look at Randy now. He's a hug, huggly teddy bear, dude. <laughs> I know. God, that was... That, that reminds me of when I was 15 and we would throw, heavy, man. throw eggs out of my friend's car. And <laughs> I, like I, I hit a homeless person in the face like right around Christmas time. Oh, and, and he's like, And he's like wandering out in the middle of the road and they're all laughing and I'm looking at him and... And the thought that went through my mind was, Merry Christmas, Jesus. And I gave myself, like, the hugest guilt trip. I'm like, I'm never, ever doing that again. Like, that, so it wasn't shooting. So Jesus did something 22. good then. Right. Well, yeah. yeah like, if you, in if my, you got in it to mind, never right. do that again, because yeah. do not do that again. Right, yeah. I, like, I was thinking. <laughs> you is, seriously could have taken his eye out. Oh, Next if it's outing. He, he was wandering <laughs> around in the middle people. of traffic. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, like, the, the, in as much as you've done it under the least of these, my brother, that totally went through my head. And I'm like, man, I, I am horrible. So I repented of that. God, yeah. Well, I mean. In defense of my 17-year-old self, they tried to get me to go uh, probably a half dozen times, and I refused each time because the thought was repulsive to me. But in uh, indictment of myself, I never told anyone what was going on. Because you were afraid that you were going to get sucked up into the invisible anus and attacked by the ship on us. Oh, Delhi got the shit for honest. Shit for honest. Right. I hate those buggers, dude. Yeah. <laughs> All right, who's next? John. The John. Johan. So my number two is leader worship. 
Um, so the Mormon church is just entirely focused on leader worship. I can't even believe to this day in my Facebook feed all of the just leaders, leaders, everything the leaders said, uh, leaders died, or every, every I mean, this, all the stuff, you know, I mean, the, the leaders are so central and everybody cares about this thing. And here are these guys who are, as far as I've ever heard, nitwits. I've never heard them say a single thing. <laughs> that is that is worth even listening to, much less like devoting your life to quoting and regurgitating and t- telling talks on their talks and everything like that. And I mean, just this this idea that you have to just worship leaders—it's just—it's just so offensive to me. Yeah. And and uh, it's the it's the. I mean, there are so many embarrassing parts about Mormonism, from holy underwear to the racism to the the bigotry and every other thing. But this leader worship thing is just—it's—I—for me, I, it's amazing to me. So. Oh yeah, I guess we should uh, breaking news on Infants on Thrones. But Tom Perry's still alive. I don't know if you yeah. Know no, El, El Tom <laughs> is still alive. El Tom. El Tom. So, so you listeners yeah. out there, I would appreciate it if. You'd stop sending me messages asking me if I'm still alive. That'd be great. Live and well. Little live and well. Oh, PSA there. Yeah, that was some. That's an interesting. I mean, someone uh, I read something. It was like a Reddit post or something. A few. It was actually several months ago, but it stuck with me, which is um, where it was like you know, in, in in kind of the court of public opinion, like the the. Mormon leaders have like little to no clout whatsoever. I mean, if the Dalai Lama writes a book, it's New York Times bestseller. Like people listen, people have him on, people listen to him. I mean, when was the last time you saw a book by a Mormon leader that was sold anywhere except Deseret Book, or out of the outside of the state of Utah? Deseret Book, but then you had put that exception in. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, outside of its own, outside of its own publishing company. Yeah, you know, it's not. They're not. They're not revered. They're not looked to as like leaders of thought. They're not looked to as people to. Because that's not what the church. That's not what the church the values. Church. That's not where they look for people. They don't look for the the biggest thinkers in the whole church and and appoint them or something like that. I mean, everybody has has said for decades that Thomas Monson is this empty suit. You know, that was coming. You know, that that that's on a schedule to be in charge someday, and then that's what ends up happening, right? <laughs> Yeah, but but the way that the leaders treat them is as if they're these great philosophers or something, you know. And it's just, I don't know. It just seems so vapid. It's but great philosophers. Kind of I don't per- know, but, that's but actual word, mouthpieces man. of the Lord, yes. No, but what they say is vapid. That's the perfect word for that to describe mm. General Conference every six fucking months. I don't know. I want Glenn to whisper this a little bit to me because I feel like I'm so outside of this. It fills up my Facebook feed, and I'm just amazed that people care. That I mean, that that anybody cares what any of them say ever because they never say anything. And and actually, I I was you know since L. Tom died, I was actually looked at the like just the Wikipedia article on it and things like that. And there's like four or five of them that I've actually never even heard their names before. I feel like mm-hmm. <laughs> just <am> not interested, <laughs> you know, there's, there's the, the little ones, you know, the newer ones, right. <laughs> but it's just like, who cares? Why would anybody care? I mean, well, of course- I mean it's, it's not that I, I, I think it's a little harsh to say they don't say anything. It's, it's just that their wisdom that they impart at general conference is very chicken soup for the soul kind of 
wisdom. It's like the little mini so that Allison put together for us. You know, can, can a, you tell the difference between, you know, what Jack Handy said, or whatever that's right. deep thought, right. but no, yeah, no, right. no, no, <laughs> it I mean, might as well be a computer know? program could be, could be written by the correlation committee to actually right. write all the talks. Right. right. And then you just have to, and then you just have to, you know, it'll just pepper in, you know, when I was a, a young man in depression era, Utah, we didn't have this and that right. <laughs> or whatever right. dumb story you're going to throw in. I mean, it can all be gen- computer generated. There's nothing going on. It's just nothing. Well, but it no. touches, it does touch people. So, I mean, they, no, it touches people because it's telling them the same thing that they expect to hear every, every six months. It's well, nothing it that you wouldn't them. find. Touches them because they worship leaders. In other words, because we have a celebrity culture in yeah. the first place, and then they're right. they're self made celebrities. There's no content to it. Yeah. What? And, right. And what, right. What, okay. I, I I have a very distinct memory in Elder's Quorum of uh, coming face to face with this and just being repulsed by it when somebody was saying. Uh, on our mission, we had a general authority that told us that we have to read our scriptures once a day, and uh, if we do, then we'll have this amazing thing. And, and I don't remember which general authority was, but wh- whoever it was, I just know he's smarter than I am. And I went, wow, just because he's got this calling, you're going to defer to him. And it was like that whole hero worship thing. Right. And I went, I can't, I can't go with that. I'm too proud. I'm de- like I'm definitely too proud for that. <laughs> I am. Well, yeah, good. Like I'm just going to defer to you because you've been called to this position, and I'm going to turn off my brain and go. Well, you must know better than me. The thinking well, has been done. Yeah. Well, I re- I actually remember because I met Howard W. Hunter once, and I remember thinking name dropper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did you, was it's it at the Dick- real? Was that the Dairy Cafe Rio? Was that the Dairy Keen? <laughs> the was Dairy the Keen? Keen? Or was it 32 Flavors? Yeah. <laughs> Basket Robins. Yeah. Um, I, I just remember thinking at the time, like, oh, my gosh, this is a guy who's seen Jesus. Right. That's what I remember thinking. Yeah. Not thinking that he's some, you know, weight, you know, old wisdom kind of guy. I just remember thinking this human being is seen jesus right and he gets direct inspiration so anything he says is really what god wants you to know and that's why you defer to them and you know the stuff he could tell me that at that point. not the stuff he does tell me but the stuff he could tell me yeah boom right yeah do, do you guys remember uh, bob giving me shit because like yes, someone was someone yes, yes. <laughs> so well in this specific oh okay instance sorry. um uh, uh somebody mentioned uh, neil degrasse tyson and I said, ah, and I was like, I didn't like what he said about philosophy, how philosophy is irrelevant now. And Bob's like, you always do that. You always uh, have, you know, these great, these, these people, these famous people, you always have this one thing you don't like about them or, or something. And, and to me, that's um, this aversion I have to the hero worship culture that I, I was raised in. Yeah. When I left the church, all of a sudden I was like, I, I don't want to hero worship anybody. And uh, some 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 author did a, a really um, good biography on Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King used to swear all the time. He was a womanizer, but but what he did was so important, you know. <laughs> and 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 so people were like, they criticized the author, saying, "I thought you were going to say you really related to that." Right now, he swear it all the time. He's a womanizer. I don't think they're gonna make that. My kind of guy. My kind of guy. But this author took a lot of flack because they're like, "Why? Why do you have to show all those words?" And he's and his answer was like, "I, you know, it. This is a human being, and this is what he was like. 
This and to like to try to create some cartoon version of him is is a discredit to his memory. Yeah. This and, is, this is what I've heard a lot of people say about Rough Stone Rolling. Oh yeah, about the book is like oh he's a human you know like it's it's okay to show these kind of you know imperfections because maybe he yeah but people the, or whatever those it's people have the presupposition that. that he also was a prophet of God and such. So Jesus. Randy, do you hate the idea like that? we put statues of people up because that isn't that kind of a form of idolatry or like uh deifying well, this person like oh you know because brigham young there's a several statues of that dude all what? over the <laughs> campus because you know he's so freaking amazing like you said i don't i don't really have a problem with statues like especially like thomas jefferson in front of the university of virginia i mean i mean he's the reason why they um Exists, but Thomas Jefferson also slept with a lot of his slaves and promised his slaves that when he died he would free them, and then reneged on that. You know, Thomas, Je- Thomas Jefferson had a lot of flaws, but he also is the reason why the University of Virginia exists. So I don't have a problem with a statue like that, um, and I don't really give any thought to idolatry. Right, and I guess I'm kind of conflating the two. I mean, it's a little different when somebody says, "Okay, this isn't like with Martin Luther King." You're recognizing, you know, the 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 impact he did on in civil liberties in the U.S. But it's not like there's this overarching philosophy that you're supposed to follow legalistically that he revealed to us, and we have to respect. You know, so I can see Martin, what you're saying. But and, and the real Martin Luther King is a hell of a lot more interesting than a cartoon caricature of him, right? All right, Elton. Number two, it's it's very related to to Hamer's, um, but mine's got a little bit of a spin on it. In fact, I I originally put Mountain Meadows as my number two and number one, but because these two are kind of interconnected, it's the <laughs> prophet infallibility or the prophet being fallible. I just. I mean, that's my number one now, but I have to stick with my number one as Mountain Meadows just because people have heard that shit from me for so long. Yeah, because you've never Spoiler. shut up. You've I gotta, never stay, shut I gotta up. stick Spoiler. with the narrative. Spoiler, <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, exactly. we got to bleep that out. <laughs> no, I, it's, it's something that Matt said on one of the earlier podcasts, I can't remember, where Mormons really do believe that their prophets, when they're speaking for the church, are infallible. And many prophets and apostles have said as much. And they also want to give room to these are just guys, they're fallible people or whatever. But when you really get into the nitty gritty of history, you start to realize, oh, my gosh, these guys were involved with like heinous crimes, <laughs> you know, like felonies and, you know, Mass really. Murders. Yeah. And that's that's the stuff where because I still remember talking to my state president about it when he was asking me, what's the big deal about Mountain Meadows anyway? It's not a big deal. It happened 150 years ago. Who cares? <laughs> And I remember thinking, um, <laughs> who cares about the six million Jews of the Holocaust? Jesus and Christ, that happened, that happened 70 a while years ago. ago. <laughs> yeah, and another part of the worried. world. Now you're worried about the Armenians. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I just, but I, but I remember thinking, well, the reason why, one of the reasons why it matters so much is because if Brigham Young was involved in criminal activity, doesn't that matter? I mean, do you think that the mouthpiece of the lord the 
the prophet of God could be involved with criminal activity. And it's always that, well, I don't know. We weren't there. What kind of criminal activity are you talking about? I mean, really? I mean, there was a lot of good things he did, too. Or why do you ignore all the good things he did and just focus on all the evil and bad things that he did? So I'm I don't hurt. know, and Tom. Why are, you, why are you only concerned about the felon? What, why do you <laughs> <laughs> exactly because <laughs> I remember because I, I, I just there was, there was some misdemeanors <laughs> <laughs> yeah. nobody talks about those <laughs> and a long list of unpaid parking tickets <laughs> but he also did a lot of good things too I mean I think, I think he said some nice things I mean that that was Not really that's that's, that's <laughs> I know the one thing that drives me the most nuts is because they they want to hold profits to this just underneath infallibility level, but they also want to grant all this fallibility. Like, oh, they're just guys. I mean, Joseph Smith, he, I mean, he never had kids with any of those women, and there was no evidence of sexual relations, so there must not have been, or whatever horseshit excuse it is. It just, it's like, okay, so we're just going to grant them all this fallibility room. But yet you still, I mean, as a Mormon, you know that you're holding this infallibility when they're speaking for God. I just, you want to have both at the same time. And it just, I don't know. That's the, that's the, the whole thing, though. All of, all of that apologetic crap that is done to make Joseph Smith a Superman to, is totally going to break down when there, when there is an actual Mormon rough stone rolling for Brigham Young. In other words, if that was actually ever to be done, which it hasn't been, Mormons totally ignore Brigham Young now. But Brigham Young is just he, – he, he is not redeemable. The guy, the guy is redeemable. He has hard – I mean, there's hardly anything you can even – you can put on the, on the positive side of the ledger for the – he was doing just horrific stuff. And, and for all of the, oh, well, I mean, now that we're so obsessed with sex, Joseph Smith didn't have sex with the women we try to pretend. Well, you're never <laughs> going to be able to prove that with Brigham Young. Yeah, exactly. 50-plus <laughs> <laughs> yeah. wives and boasting yeah. uh, about and having uh, his kids. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, right. <laughs> you can't, that's that's uh, Joseph's get-out-of-jail card is that uh, nobody can find any DNA evidence that he had any yet. kids with his wives yet. Yet. It's going to happen. But it's such a stoop. Whatever. It doesn't it's matter. Stupid, stupid know, argument. It's stupid. It's stupid. Right. Anyway, and what, and by the time in the end of the day, it's gonna. It doesn't. It doesn't hold up when you try to bring Brigham Young into it. Then. Yeah. Right. Because he right. was next. And the fallibility is just out of control. Yeah. <laughs> it's all fallible. It's all. I know. And even Jake, because remember we talked about this with the Aggieland thing. Uh-huh. Uh, the guy's like, oh, you got to contextualize it. You know, even yeah. even when you contextualize Brigham Young, his racism it's was like, worse. It's right. like all of the. All of those, all of those people that live on the sun just look like Quakers. No, no, he didn't mean that. He meant that they. They're wearing unitards. I mean, what, what, what are we saying? You know what I mean? All, it, it's, fun, it's funny because my dad, when I still meet up with him, every once in a while, he'll, I mean, even recently, he'll say, so, how are you feeling about Brigham Young now? I was like, the dude hasn't changed. <laughs> right. but what he's am, dead. Am I supposed to feel better now? Like, our relationship is much better because he's apologized for so much shit in the last couple of years. Right, right. No, he's, no. 
He finally, you know, finally, he finally came clean on the whole handcart thing. That was his fault. <laughs> yeah, oh. right. Oh, right. it's so sad. Uh, you know. Oh, thank you, for, so me for finally coming clean on that one. That only, you know. <laughs> Whoopsie. Yeah. Right. Yeah, this is. <laughs> that would be a funny. That would be a funny like minisode series of like just bringing people on from church history and having them do like an, a formal apology. Be like, oh, we got we got Brigham on Brigham Young today. You know, do you have anything you want to say? Yeah, I kind of screwed up the handcart thing. That was a <laughs> that was a doozy. Blew it. Really blew it there. I guess shouldn't have protected all those guys with the masker, right? Yeah. You guys you know, looking back, that? Kind of, right? Man, I thought I got rid of all the documentation. Right, right. So close. <laughs> all right. Who's I can. Next? I can always go back to to Krista the psychic and just get the real Brigham Young on. Oh, get the yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah the, the, real the real Brigham Young. the real Brigham Young is like my only regret is that I didn't have my Danites slit all your ancestors' throats. You. Yeah right. right. Yeah, actually, you that, that that would be a better minisode, like the reluctant apology, like the forced apology. You've got something over him, you got to force it, but he really yeah. is just right. yeah. I'm, <laughs> signs I'm so the signs. Right. You know what's, you know what's funny? I actually fouls fall out. I actually thought that I was going to be the guy who hates Brigham Young the most, and now it's like a competition, and I think Hamer's winning. I mean, Randy's yeah. a close second, but I. I thought I yeah. was the guy. The right. closest thing that Brigham would ever come to apologies, I'm sorry you're such a fucking idiot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I said it's I'm a, sorry. No, but you, I think you're such right. such a committed asshole. I mean, I mean, Brigham Young was am- amazing, I mean, in his <laughs> assholery. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it's just un, 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 so, so unrepentant. I mean, the guy, here's a guy who, you know, you know, who was a, he had, you know, he has the same limitations of Joseph Smith in terms of being uneducated, doesn't know anything, and all those kind of things. But he's so proud of it, <laughs> as opposed to Joseph Smith, who was like, like a lifelong learner trying to learn, and he would only like he'd regress into his insecurities when somebody challenged him who knew more than him, and then he then he then he'd be an asshole. But Brigham Young was an asshole first. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So where's his grave? Can we all just like uh, meet there sometime? Yeah, and I'll, take, know, I'll take a shit on top of it. The church, the church hides it. The Mormon church has, hides its grave. His grave it's guarded. Oh, yeah, so, no, no, it's not guarded. You can go there. It's hidden yeah, away. It's, it's very easy to get. Yeah, so you, we we can have a little thing. Can we yeah, all can we all drop well, uh, drop crowd sunstone sunstone little ritual yes. sunstone little ritual. Right. Exactly. We do our sunstone ritual. I know that some of you don't have the same feeling about rituals that I do, <laughs> but I think I think that in some cases rituals have fine meaning. Ritual. Rituals have meaning. Yeah. God, okay. you're making it sound like, like number one reason, Glenn. <laughs> right. Number one reason. Okay, but before I give my number one reason, I, I I loved Jake's idea a while back about doing the a musical version of the uh, Reed Smoot hearing. Oh right! So yes. got to do that, and then yeah, immediately so we'll that, after, right? we've got to do a Journal of Discourse as the musical. Yeah, Brigham Young's greatest hit, right? That's gonna go on forever. No, no, we don't do the whole thing. I mean, just like we're not doing the we're not doing the whole Reed Smooth thing either. I mean, it's it's like the highlights. The greatest (laughs) Yeah, that's why it's taking so long. Yeah, (laughs) this this musical is forty two hours long. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Bob would never sign off on that. 
Neither would Tom. Yeah, neither would Tom. Okay, so my number one, we've touched on this already, but it's the ethnocentrism in the church and uh, like all of the superiority, uh, the superior, the superior attitudes that I saw in people like my my ex mother in law that would drive down the street and she would point out the people in her neighborhood that weren't members of the church, but they were probably terrestrial people. And th- but those people <laughs> over there were definitely telestial. And, you know, like they're, oh, they're, so, they're terrestrial worthy. You know, the, the, is that is that like spoon worthy? <laughs> yeah. The guy who, who They're gonna stood make great up in, servants, man. The guy who stood up in church and and for his opening prayer was uh, our our beloved heavenly Father. We are so humble to be the most blessed Joe. of all thy people yeah. on the earth, yeah. you know. And I'm like, we're so humbled to be the most blessed of all the people on the earth. And I'm like, I don't think that word means what you think it means, you know. So the, all that false humility. And Glenn, um, Glenn, do you think it's ironic though that they have this like uh, this little mythology of the Rammy Umptum? Yeah, I was going to go there. I've got it written down right oh, here. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, and John John that said it earlier. It. That proved it. Yeah, John said it earlier, and I I kind of smiled when he mentioned the Rammy Umptum. Um, that that when I I started looking at that Rammy Umptum, that here you've got these Zoramites that are standing up and praying that we're so much we're we're so thankful that we're so much better than everybody else. Uh, around us that we're so much more chosen and i always i always felt like we're almost there except that the zoramites denied christ and mormons don't deny christ but then i started thinking about like priesthood blessings and you know how i've talked before about how like christ's atonement is dormant until the mormon priesthood activates it that's kind of a form of denying christ you know like christ is only as impactful as mormon's uh, allow him to be through our priesthood ordinance thing. So, yeah, it, it, but it's all it's all lumped into ethnocentrism. And when when I saw the the Book of Mormon musical, um, you know, Randy was there. We saw it on on opening night with a big group of people uh, from the Mormon Stories group, and just like a dam broke inside of me because I was watching this Elder Price, mostly me, and it was like, I was just looking at myself, and I it's like knowing that. This was written by non-Mormons, and this is how they see us, and that we're – it's so spot on with that ethnocentric view. It just – it kind of shattered any shelf, any remnant of pretended shelf that I had um, at that point. So, mm-hmm. you know, that that's it. That's it. Well, I, I want to piggyback on this one because mine's basically the same thing. It's the kind of legalistic, pharisaical yeah. uh, exclusivity of Mormonism where there's uh, – actually, Eugene Merman, who's a um, stand-up comedian and voice – he does a lot of voices on cartoons. But anyway, he has um, – uh, one of his comedy albums is the, – the title is God is an Autistic 12-Year-Old Boy. <laughs> and and it's got it's it's around and uh, that always sticks in my head when you have the two witnesses when somebody's getting baptized because like God's up there and it's like no he he needs to go all the way under the water all the way under the water there was a hair that was right. uh, not fully submerged exactly you know I actually uh, this is a funny I don't know if any, I've ever I've told you guys this story but I was actually sealed twice in the temple because the sealer did the whole ceremony. 
and after we did our like kiss the bride thing, so we you know, do, do do the whole ceremony, kiss the bride, and then Erica's dad goes up to the sealer. It's like, oh, you forgot to say a word, and he was like, you know what, you're right, I forgot to say a word. So then they had to seal it again. So like the second sealing was the one that counted, but like the kiss was super awkward. Exactly, because the kiss, the first kiss was awesome. Like it was like super. I don't know. It was like spontaneous. It was like all we were all there. The passion was there, and it was all good. And then the second one was just like lame because it's like okay, this time with feeling. It's like fuck you. You know that's what I was thinking. <laughs> Stupid bullshit. But the first one didn't count, Jake. See? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's embarrassing, dude. I feel for you. And that's all over the temple, you know. They got witnesses for baptisms of the dead, make sure every little thing is done right. And then when they somebody goes, um, I don't think he pronounced the name right. Oh, it'll all be sorted out in heaven. Right, exactly. <laughs> I, I used to think that about the sacrament with the you know, like you cover the bread when you're blessing the water with like that little lacy thing so that the right. blessing rays don't like accidentally hit the like, water when like they're directed radiation. to the bread and right gospel radiation. Yeah, the gospel radiation, you know. Like <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, but that's all part yeah. that's all part of the magic worldview and right, you know, right. like that you have to be precise in what you say or else you won't have you know, the the elements don't have to obey you. Right, right. Oh, and you know, everyone's like, everyone's had a hundred experiences with the with the poor, awkward priest that messes up three times in a row yeah. on a prayer and has to say it again and again. My, my asshole bishop, he he let this kid go eight times. Oh my god! And I remember around five or six, you know, there was always that person's like, oh, let it go, yeah, let it be. And and when he went to seven. And I and I just looked up. I'm like, I'm gonna freaking walk. This John's losing his shit. I want, I, want to, I, want to, I want to go up to the poor kid and say, dude, let's just let's just Jerry Maguire this bail. Yeah. Well, right. and like, can you imagine if that's your kid? Like, like you're the parent and you're so, watching and so your the, son be humiliated this, in front of the whole ward, and the bishop's allowing it and instigating but, but, it. The oh, eighth so. time, the bishop goes down from the stand. And kneels next to the kid, oh. and then helps him through it. Oh my god! Oh my god. I whispers in his ear. What a Pharisee! It's, it's the one of the most traumatic experiences that I've ever witnessed. It was horrible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the stuff of number oneness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> it's that deserved. Was, it's deserved. Uh, uh, yeah, that's the shit I'm talking about. So that's my number one. Yeah. Amen. All right. So my number one isn't really. A big one, but it's it's my number. This not is my number. This is my number. This is my number one reason I left the Mormon Church. But it's not a big thing. I don't, no. it's not, nobody it's would more care. like a three or four. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I left. But Look at Randy just it's rocking a, back and forth. It's not a big oh. deal. <laughs> so, John, <laughs> the little echo. That starts an avalanche. Is that not significant? Okay, there you go. Yeah, well, I'm right. sure it's big then. Okay. Ooh, well, it started something big in my life. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm sorry. So <laughs> I was just merrily going on my way in my life. 2006, um, I've been practicing for a year as an orthodontist. Um, adopted a kid. My wife is pregnant. I'm so happy. <laughs> Such a happy Mormon. And then I get a phone call from my best friend, um, uh, saying he has read a book called Rough Stone Rolling. And I'm like, you know, you, you know that hubris you have um, before you have a faith crisis. Like, there's nothing that could destroy my testimony. 
So I just boldly said, dude, just tell me what's bothering you. And he told me about polyandry. And I had never heard that before. And the earth literally, and I didn't literally, figuratively shifted <laughs> underneath my feet. Like it was, I got dizzy. I, I walked over to the stairs and I sat down and I tried to be the friend that, you know, that, that real believing friend that supports uh, someone in doubt. But at the same time, crushing doubt was falling all around me. And, uh, so you didn't just believe that it was a lie? I mean, you didn't just like, oh, this is this can't be true. Like, it, there was no. I tried. I, I I said, okay, where's your source? You know, that, that was my first question. What's your source? And he says, the guy's a patriarch. <laughs> His name is Richard Bushman. He is an active patriarch, and he's a historian, and he's a believer. And I'm like, oh my god. And and I I think I went out that day to Deseret Book. It was like a 40 minute drive from where I lived, and bought the book. And I went straight to the index to find polyandry and then went right to where the polyandry section was. And uh, it was, it was um, quite a traumatic thing for me. But it was something that I kept private for about two years because I was, you know, I was, I was a high priest at the time. And so much like polyandry. Kept private for several years. <laughs> yeah. No, did you share any of the inner turmoil with even your wife at the time? Not, like, not, been... not until their anniversary when he broke it to her over dinner. Oh. Yeah, six years later. Yeah. Jeez, dude, he must have um, been a bad way. Yeah, I was... Uh, it was uh, a weird time in my life where I felt like I was living a double life. And... Um, but I just... Like, the more I tried to come up with some way that he could be justified in doing this, the more it led me down the rabbit hole. And so, I mean, it's, it's really the, one of the least significant reasons why the church is just false, <laughs> but it, it was, it's, that's, it's not, it's not, a, this isn't like not on people's top list though. <laughs> this is something that's actually, especially, I don't know, it's important that all the different things that are going on with the polygamy and all the things that are going on with that kind of betrayal affect a lot of people, you know? So Yeah, you're, yeah. you're not the only one that has, would have rough stone rolling right up at the top. Or yeah, poly- common. Yeah, or yeah, or polyandry yeah. either, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. It's just that Brigham Young was just so much worse than polyandry. <laughs> I mean, mass murders, you know, a systematic racism. But but this this was like when when you became open to all the other criticism, right? right. It was the first yeah. time that I could ask the question: Is it possible the church is not true? Right. Before that, yeah. I, that, that question was incoherent to me. Yeah. Nice. So how do you respect people who still believe all this stupid stuff? But we have, <laughs> I, know. Yeah, I think we're going to have to push that one. I know we what? are. That's not going to work. Yeah. Do you yeah. respect your dad? Uh, well, let's let's. Uh, I don't. I, really, have... I don't really know my dad that well. But I mean, but <laughs> I mean, sad, like, I, it is. It is. But but it's it's uh, it's one of the reasons why I want to talk about respect. You know, eventually, I don't think we're going to get to it this time. But because. Yeah. Like, you can love people, but can you love people without respecting them? Can you respect people without admiring them? Yeah, well, I looked up you the know, definition of respect. I was like, holy shit, this doesn't mean what I think it means. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but let's, but we still it's got... It's a fun conversation. We still got John and uh, Tom. Right, go. right. Yeah. And speaking with John. 
Well, mine, my, mine is known. I mean, because I've already said this in the last podcast or whatever, which was, or a couple podcasts, which are, was that sexism was the number one problem that I have with the church. And I think it's still the number one disqualifying thing right now, which is I can't imagine that people are able to raise children in this environment because the environment is um, so thoroughly um, ingraining and legitimizing this horrific gender role environment, which is not only just devastating for girls to grow up in, but it's also really horrible for boys to grow up in to to be subjected to this. So the sexism is is so much more universal and ubiquitous to say, oh, well, Catholics are, are sexist. They don't have women priests either. But priests are a weird thing in the Catholic Church. Priests are these guys that are, there's only a couple of them, yeah. and, the, and, they, and they are not, they're not involved in the family structure and all this kind of thing. It's like a, an alien has come to visit you or something like that. In Mormonism... You don't have 12-year-old <laughs> deacons in Catholicism yeah. and 16-year-old priests. And, yeah. yeah. No, in Mormonism, every single thing is... A, priesthood leadership and every and priesthood is every all men on all boys and 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 so it is it is it is just hits every up and down the whole thing and and because it's so ubiquitous and because it's you can't you can't overcome it i mean and so the only overcoming that people have in it yeah you can grow up in a hostile environment and transcend the environment and be a wonderful per, you know a person in in the future but it the environment itself is so toxic that I can't, I can't imagine that people of good conscience can actually um, be part of it uh, with children. So, Yeah. And that's something, I mean, it's probably telling that, that that's, of, of all the other, like, top threes, there have been a lot of overlap. And then John's the only one that has said sexism. She makes me feel a little bit bad, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's just, it's hard to, I mean, it, I believe that patriarchy hurts everybody, but it's it's hard to recognize the harm the the downside. It's more difficult to recognize the downsides when you're on the quote unquote you know beneficiary side it's, of it, right? It's, it's, but it's bad for you too. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree. It's it's bad for me too. It's just it's harder. Yeah. I guess it's like I don't I didn't recognize it as readily, or I didn't internalize the harm from it as as readily or as overtly as if I was. Con- you know, I, I can't imagine what it would be like if I was in the congregation. And every single person in any sort of leadership position or, you know, virtually every person that we are hero worshiping, like you're talking about, John, was a man or was a woman, you know. And like I was totally and systematically barred from even participating in that structure. I can't imagine how horrible that would be. Yeah, sexism is something that we all – all of us, I think, have eventually uh, come come to grips with and dealt with. Um, but because we were all privileged white males, um, uh, well, all of us were straight except for John, uh, and, and John was just a lot smarter than us. <laughs> but uh, like all of us, uh, eventually came across and dealt with the topic of sexism. It just wasn't it wasn't something that um, was a catalyst. Well, I don't know that we really have dealt with it in the right, right. ways or not. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not saying we dealt I, with it the right ways. I said eventually I, we came, think, we, we we came, we came to grips with it and had to deal with it because it's there. You're saying that you're saying that you see that it exists now, but that wasn't the thing that stuck out at you about the church. 
It wasn't, yeah, and it wasn't anything that um, was problematic with me until I I lost I lost the uh, you know grip of the belief not grip but um, it lost its grip on me the belief system. Yeah, and I I kind of lump it in with the ethnocentrism and just kind of my disdain for priesthood in general. Um, but I think that's an indication that I really haven't dealt with it as a specific issue, you know, so that, that there's probably much more there for me to, to realize that I just haven't. Yeah, but you're, you're you I don't gotta, have to, I haven't gotta, faced with it and I'm not, Yeah, you have, you got a teenage daughter, right? I mean, you didn't want her being raised in that sexist environment where she's taught that her entire self-worth is finding a worthy priesthood holder? No, my my fourteen year old, almost fifteen, she still attends church regularly. She's going to girls camp next week, and this is something she jokes around all the time. We we went for a long walk the other day, and she was talking about she doesn't want to uh, marry a Mormon boy, but when she has kids, she wants them to have some kind of social, you know, thing like the you know. So we're having these kinds of conversations, but she she recognizes and really hates that. Uh, try to find a worthy priesthood holder message that she gets anytime she does go to church. So, but 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 I'm I'm just saying for like you know like I can recognize that part of it, but I still don't think that I've I've spent a ton of time to where I can empathize with the the plight of you know the the disenfranchised you know because I never I never had to you know I mean even with my daughter it's. We, I, I left several years ago, and they've pretty much left with me, even the ones that still have to go occasionally. But, uh, I, I still remember the first time I actually witnessed, you know, my my male privilege bias and seeing what sexism does to women is when I married my wife. Well, I guess it was before when she goes through the first time, and then right. you escort her through the veil or whatever. Because as soon as we go through the motions. My wife is, this is her first time through the temple, so she's got all these questions, and she, she comes through, and, you know, spoiler alert, the guys actually lead the women through the veil. And then it's Jesus who lead us, you know, privileged males through the veil. So, sorry, yeah. ladies. We right. get Jesus, they get us. Right. Anyway, so, so my wife gets in there, and, it's like, and she immediately says, so wait a second, so who led you through the veil? Jesus. So you <laughs> lead me through the veil? Yeah. She's like, why do I have to cover my face? Uh, because you're more pure? (laughs) (laughs) You know, at the the time, at the time, I... Because Jesus is gay, (laughs) you wanted me. (laughs) I just remember... Jesus was was gay for me. And I remember the last question she asked me was, so you get to know my secret temple name, but I don't get to know yours? And I remember in that moment thinking, yeah, that's not fair. Yeah, that's kind of yeah. bullshit. Did you ever tell her? No, I never did. Aww. I should now. She's never asked since. I mean, whatever. So you yeah, haven't, right. you haven't really I... grappled with it then, Tom. You've got some work to do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so. <laughs> you still got some work to do. <laughs> Oh, freaking dumb. <laughs> so the last time I went to Mormon church was like five years ago. And it was in Salt Lake City. And what I was doing was I was having this immersion um, week 
with community of Christ leaders, including our general officers of the church. We don't say general authorities, but anyway, people who are presidents of 70 and apostles. So we went incognito to a LDS service. So they didn't know who was it was, just regular friends of members of the ward. And, uh, you know, because otherwise there's people would have been acting different. We were trying not to have the observer effect be too much. And so, anyway, in doing it, though, just in the whole process of it, just by being a complete outsider, it was just amazing how just horribly, just horribly, horribly, horribly sexist the entire experience was. You know, I mean, it just every at every aspect of it, every every portion of every part of it, and then I don't know. And this one thing that I remember was that there was this moment in the sacrament meeting when the bishop had called this girl who was graduating from primary into Sunday school um, up to the stand, and she was so embarrassed to even be standing there. And he kept on he was he was telling her all of these things that about womanhood and things like that that were just. It was just so embarrassing and horrible that how un- uncomfortable she was and how um, clueless he was and just how awful he was being. Mm. And at the end of this, this whole long <clears throat> horror, you know, of being able to see it from the outside and come back to this, you know, the apostle, um, you know, when, when he was like saying, you know, for us, so for me, I sort of saw, saw this program, in other words, about reaching out to mormons who have been coming to us and everything like that we sort of saw this as okay well there's a lot of them coming to us maybe we need this because we need members badly (laughs) but the end of the day in seeing this and seeing what people are experiencing this for us is a peace and justice issue (laughs) Mm -hmm. because of the the, what people are going through here is is some and our cousins (laughs) it's something that we have to um we have to do something about because this is bad, you know, and yeah, what people right. are, you know, so and right. it's, just, it's, it's bad. Well, they don't really have any good answers for it. Like there was a, a female in our, in our ward just recently who confronted one of my former bishops about some of the glaring sexist things in the church. Mm-hmm. And his only response was, well, you guys get cushioned seats in Relief Society. Oh my god! <laughs> Are there you fucking is. kidding me? And then he said, and he says, because we have the hard metal seats, and they, oh, there they, it is. Their bathroom is nicer. Usually, yeah, they, they, yeah. There's they a have, mother's yeah. lounge. Yeah, there's, yeah, a, there's a mother's lounge. lounge where you can pull out your boob and feed your kid. <laughs> that's how. That's how bad of an you know they have like nothing no. in response to it. So yeah, I agree with you, Joan. Oh, they have a response. The response is, oh, my God, uh, you guys are so wonderful and pure. I could never be a mother because I'm not pure enough. Right. You guys are so wonderful and pure that you get the special, special privilege. And chairs. Of carrying a baby and having it shoot out your vagina. Which is a double insult to those women who can't have kids. Oh, just, oh. Don't, you don't have to tell me about that because yeah, my yeah. wife, eight years, suffered. Week after week after week, hearing about all these stories about motherhood, 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 and we couldn't get pregnant. Yep. All of her friends moved on uh, from her in her mind because they had kids, and that's all they ever wanted to talk about. And all that was was just like knives stabbing her right? Um, because of the culture. 
my my friend who's a um, member of community of Christ, who's a woman who's in, in leadership, she um, can't have children. Uh, just just no, and, and never will. And and we were they were having a um, they were entertain they were taking around an official um, delegation of Mormon hierarchs in through a, a a site that we were hosting them, and and the apostle said to her, you know, like promised her that she would be able to have kids, and it's just it was just so it's just so horribly offensive. Totally, <laughs> you know. Offensive. You know that this that this self righteous nobody who knows nothing, you know, is going to just say, you know, just going to say that kind of respect junk, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean and that's a, that's the kind of thing that just anyway. Yeah, it's yeah. very it's very abusive, and but really, the, I mean, it comes from. Uh, I mean, he wasn't trying to be malicious. No, of course it, not. This, he's an idiot and, an, and a liar and a, and, and a, and he's just <laughs> insanely in his entire self being is duplicitous, <laughs> but I'm sure he's a good guy. He probably plays golf. Yeah, oh yeah. He's nice. Guy. Awesome. Right, right. <laughs> well, you made an excellent case for the sexism probably should be higher on all our lists, but you know, Tom, Tom right. still got privilege, time to change yo. His. Yo, we were like pigs in slop with our privilege, man. I know. <laughs> we could conduct meetings, wear yeah. suits, get the hard chairs, but it was worth it. So, yeah, Tom, it, well, it's a sacrifice. <laughs> Tom, oh, the hard- sacrifice. We had, to take, we had to take down all the chairs. So those, those women never did that. Yeah, I do. exactly. Tom, exactly. Are, are you rethinking uh, Mountain Meadows Massacre as your number one now? No, I think Randy set it up perfectly. Okay. You know, he had uh, Pollyanne Marie. It can, was, I go, uh, can I go what? pee real quick? Just real quick? Just real quick? Go ahead. Just as long as you leave just, to pee, just put don't on... sit there and go. Right. Okay, thanks. Like the little yeah, rubric. Just... Right. Yeah, Thank exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> Much better. Is this going to happen? This is going to happen. Don't do. <laughs> oh, it's. Oh, it's good. Oh, <laughs> why would you. So Tom, hey, so what was your number one? <laughs> We're all in suspense. Yeah, because nobody knows. It could be anything. No one knows. I have to go with the Mountain Meadows Massacre, of course. Um, I didn't want to, but whatever. The reason why is because exactly what Randy described. It it led. It started all the dominoes for falling for me. Right. Every, and as soon as I found out about that, it, that was the first, you know, when I was neck deep into research, that's when I asked myself the question, like, could this, what, what could, could Brigham Young not be a prophet? Could the church not be true? Yeah. And that was the, that was the first time that I actually entertained that question when was when I was really getting neck deep into all that. And, and I just, I just remember how vivid all that was. And of course, you know, as all of us know, once that first domino goes, that's it. And it's like, okay, so if they've been lying to me about this, or if this is the first thing that I've uncovered that I didn't know about, what else is there? And then shitstorm. Right. So how what, so how did you find out about the Mountain Meadows Massacre? I, you probably told the story before, but I don't remember. All right. Well, it was uh, – there was a movie that, that had come out, the September Dawn movie. Oh wow, the September Dawn movie. Is that with John Voight? 
Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, who was it? It was uh, the guy that played uh, Zod in Superman. He was Brigham Young. Terrence Stamp. That's right. Mm, that's the guy. He know that. <laughs> I love Terrence Stamp. He's awesome. He's a, he's a celebrity worshiper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should be a Mormon, Glenn. Terrence Stamp, man. Anyway, like I, like I've said in other podcasts, he was in was, Young Guns. Who Terrence Stamp was? Yeah. With Emilio Estevez. Yeah, yeah. He was the guy that collected all the boys in Young Guns. All right. Let's let Tom tell the story. Terrence right, Stamp. Right. right. I'll make you. I'll make you. Terrence Stamp. Okay, we got it. Thanks, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, so that movie had come out, and the local news were, was covering the quote controversy that was happening because of it. And they pulled a bunch of uh, historians into a room, and they said, "Do you guys, who in here thinks that Brigham Young ordered the massacre?" And only like three out of the ten raised their hand. And then the rest said that they didn't think so. But those three caused me enough doubt where I'm like, wait, what? Three historians actually think that he ordered it? And that's when I was like, that can't be. What? And so did the, did the cover-up, uh, was, that, was that a problem for you? Because really his obstruction that was the of justice. Problem. That yeah. was the ultimate problem. Because you can't nail Brigham, down, Brigham Young down with the order. You can't. There's, you know evidence that points to the contrary so you can't really nail him down for that but you can right. nail him down for the cover-up right there's just no there's no arguing with that and that and, to me is like the one thing that's like okay that he still has blood on his hands just from the cover-up alone oh and yeah it, it, it has just like what you described randy earlier where he goes down and he tears that monument down yeah he, he didn't have any guilt for it he didn't have any remorse it, it was like he was rubbing the rest of the rest of his life obstruction after the fact. I mean, so whether yeah. whether whatever he did before the fact, we don't know. But like you say, we can can argue either way. But after the fact, it's a consistent policy yeah. of mm-hmm. felony obstruction after he the fact. Prote- yeah, he protected those that were involved. He made yeah. promises to to those that were involved to keep them, you know, eternally safe or whatever stupid thing it was. And it the the cover up, yeah, it's just undeniable. And to me, it was like okay. Maybe you, he can't say that he ordered the massacre, but you certainly can say that he covered it up, and that's just you know just a little bit lower than the actual you know being there and killing him. In my, he, create, he also created the culture with the blood atonement doctrine, and uh, it, I really don't like it when people refer to John. His name was John D. Lee, right? Yeah, the, one, the scapegoat. Yeah, the, yeah. no, don't. That's what I was about to say. He's not a scapegoat. Scapegoat, by definition, is something that is innocent, that is used to take on the sins of the community. That's a Hebrew Hebrew thing. He's the fall guy because he was guilty. He was was not the only one that was guilty. So he's the fall guy, but people call him scapegoat all the time. He's not a scapegoat. He's a fall guy. Right. Good point. But John, uh, Tom, you should uh, you should sue KSL for exposing you to information that was damaging to your testimony. What what would be the the damages? My re- yeah, the damages like the my, damages. My life, lifetime subscription to Deseret Book. Pain and suffering. <laughs> <laughs> well, you need to get Jackie Treehorn. 
That's yeah, what you need to do. All, all the all the lattes you can drink. They're right. All the lattes you can drink. The glove doesn't fit. Did you put on bomb? Who told you to put on the bomb? Put the bomb on. I think put the bomb on. I think Randy got rid of all the bomb. I think he used it all. I use probably ninety percent of it. Yeah. It's still about ten percent left. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what a bomb is? Do you know what a bomb does? <laughs> All right. All right, guys. Wow. Five times three, fifteen reasons why we left the church. Well, yeah. technically it's a shitload more, but those are just the ones that we highlighted tonight. Yeah. Can the intro music be uh, like 50 ways to leave your lover or whatever? Ooh, right. right. Let's get good. on the train, you know, train, chain, whatever. It's all inside your head, she said to me. The answer is easy if you take it logically. <laughs> I'd like yeah. to help you with your problem to be free. There must be 50 ways to leave your lover. <laughs> is that Paul Simon? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So one out of 15 of the reasons was sexism. And, and the one was the gay guy. <laughs> he doesn't even like women. Diversity! Yay! <laughs> and he hates women. <laughs> this is the last thing he wants in his life is women. <laughs> I don't want to be sexist towards women. <laughs> Hi, this is Dan from South Jordan, Utah, and I once threw away every R-rated movie I owned, thanks to a bishop. I somehow forgot heat. I guess it's the Lord's tender mercies. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? I can't believe you put my dick on a cantaloupe. Oh, is Tom here? I, Tom, are you? Yeah, I'm here. What's up? You need some front lighting, Tom. You need, I mean, it's just where, so do you have two screens? Is that what's going on? Oh, there you, there you go. There's that handsome face. Yeah, because you're looking, you're looking like way off to the side. Because I have, I have the, this webcam that's over here, I think. Oh, yeah. that's it. That's the one. It's that's not the, the one. Because I don't have one built in with the screen. You can't like clip it over the the top, so it's more. Do you like, want me to clip it over to the top? It just it just looks like you're pissed and you're looking away. Yeah, it's like we're interrupting you. I feel like I'm interrupting Tom. <laughs> All right, hang on. It's, it's like you're typing an email and we're like, Dad, uh, Dad, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, shut up. Hang on, Diggs. Hang on. <laughs> One of the reasons why I love Tom is he reminds me so much of my high school uh, football teammates. Hang on, dicks. <laughs> the problem is all inside your head, it seems to me. The answer is easy if you take it logically. Go kiss a boy, Roy. <laughs> you know, the problem with this whole 
fucking song is. It's just all talking. I hate talking in songs. I mean, it, why can't we just... There's no tune to this. Okay. So kiss a boy, Roy. Drink some tequila. She, I, I don't even... There's no tune. Grieves us all to see you in such pain. We wish there was... We wish there was... We wish there was something... What well, no, is the same thing? So we make podcasts and we shut shit inside your brain about the 50 ways. You know, this is crazy. You know, the thing about it is the, you know, the 50 ways to leave your lover. The, it's all about how pathetic people are that they can't actually leave until there's actually, until they actually have somebody else to like, trade off from you know so that people are so insecure uh, why don't we both just sleep on it tonight and we'll believe in the morning and you'll and i believe in the morning you'll begin to see the light and then i kissed her and i realized she was probably right you know so in other words the idea is that you know until you have something like a bird in hand you can't, you can't get rid of two in the bush okay okay okay, okay. So put, so put in your, in your earbuds, earbuds and listen, and listen, listen again tonight. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.